Hey everybody, welcome back to Gray Malkin Lane's newest Patreon episode. I am so excited to be joined by my good friend, Philip C.V. Uh, Philip was on my show recently. Uh, we have struck up a real life friendship and let our kids hang out together. We both live in Utah and I'm so happy to have you on today. Philip, how are you? I'm great. I'm excited to be here. We've been chatting about this one for a while and it's going to mm -hmm. be fantastic. <laughs> You've spent your day drawing comics and now you get to talk Summers Family. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's it's like all the good things together in one. So, <laughs> Philip, I'd love to uh, have listeners learn a little bit of your origin story in comics, if you're willing to share. And then uh, where do people know you from? Yeah, so I'm um, Philip CV. I use he, him pronouns. Uh, I am mainly in comics. I think for the last year or two, I've been working primarily as an artist. I've bounced back and forth as a writer, artist, sometimes writer and an artist as well. But um, as far as it relates to this podcast, especially, I've drawn a handful of issues of the X-Men Unlimited, uh, uh, Marvel ex Marvel Unlimited exclusive series. I worked with uh, Torin Groenbeck on his uh, arc and then Zach Thompson on an arc as well. I just literally today and sent off the final files like 20 minutes ago, wrapped up the Edge of Venomverse Unlimited series, which as of the date we're recording, which is uh, June 20th, the first two issues are out. I've done nine of the 12 issues of that series in total. Um, I, I'm The next series I'm starting on, literally I started on it as soon as I uploaded the other one. I don't know when it will be announced, but it is another Marvel Unlimited thing, um, which uh, it features some mighty heroes, we'll say, uh, at this point. <laughs> some uh, might say the mightiest. Some might say the mightiest. Um, <laughs> I was just talking to to some X-Men editors this week, hoping to get back into the X office, but also talking to some spider editors about some stuff there as well. So I'm, I am beyond blessed and rich to be doing a bunch of Marvel stuff. But outside of there, I've done a bunch of work for Dark Horse, did a lot of Tomb Raider for them. I uh, did a book called, uh, a graphic novel called Kepler that I got to work with David Duchovny on, which was a delight. I've done a bunch of creator-owned stuff. Did a series called Triage and a series The House with artist Drew Zucker and a book called Paradox and started my career in Top Cow. So I've been around and in comics, I've been in comics for nine years, nine, ten years at this point, but just, you know, it's just the comics thing, right? People are just barely starting to like notice my name after about a decade. And I'm I'm fine with that. It's given me plenty of time to make all the mistakes and hopefully be a little bit better than I was 10 years ago. When I first reached out to you, I'm like, oh, here's this cool new artist. And I realized we have a ton in common, but also, you know, everyone, which is amazing <laughs> as well. And you're working with some of the greats right now too. I'm so excited to see what comes next for you. I'm a huge fan of yours personally, but I also am a huge fan of your art. I oh, think you're you. fantastic. And I can't wait to see everything that you're doing and what comes next for you. You're, you're a, a, just a huge talent. Uh, just putting this out in the universe. I want to write a Philip CV story one day for Marvel and we will team up. It'll be great. <laughs> that sounds like a blast. Um, let's see, you asked about my comics origin story. Um, and it mainly just comes about like I, the first memory I have of it as a child was getting Secret Wars action figures in the early 80s. Literally, I was two years old and got them from my dad and it is the first memory I have. So I've kind of been like comics on the brain since birth. Um, and then, you know, between action figures and cartoons, Spider-Man and his amazing friends, Pride of the X-Men, and then as I was a little, a little bit older, X-Men the Animated Series and Batman the Animated Series were hugely influential touchstones. I got random comics, tons of action figures with trading cards as they did in the, the uh, early 90s. They were fantastic. And then when I was nine years old, I was wandering through the mall and there was a comic store there and I'd never seen a comic store in the mall. I'd been to one comic store maybe when I was like four or five. I have a vague memory of that. 
Um, but in the window display, they had the Jim Lee, Chris Claremont, X-Men number one and just stacks of them. And I was like, oh, my God, X-Men number one. Like, I got to get X-Men number one. It's going to be rich. And that's how I talked my mom into letting me buy comics was that it was going to be a, an investment for college. I didn't understand the uh, the market mechanics of that comic sold eight and a half million copies and it will never be <laughs> worth anything. So if you pay more than like five dollars for a copy of X-Men number one, you are getting gouged because everyone and their dog has 25. I literally have, I think nine or 10 copies of that that i just bought every time i see one i pick it up <laughs> supply and demand my friend <laughs> exactly oh uh, so i took that issue home and i read it and if you've never read an x-men comic and you pick up that issue as the first one it is towards the end of claremont's 16 year run and it is incomprehensible it does not make any sense whatsoever having no context of what came before it is a terrible first issue bless claremont and for everything that he's done to that franchise and i understand so much of that and the time was under the control of bob harris and had very little to do with poor Chris getting kind of uh, shoved out of his own book. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, but I read it and I was like, I know who some of these characters are from the cartoon, but this art is incredible. And I've decided what I'm gonna do with my life. I'm gonna be a comic book artist. So I started collecting comics ravenously and that was 93. So the main thing happening in all the X-Men books at the time was uh, Executioner Song. Mm -hmm. It took me about a year of random back issues and traveling to places to find all 12 issues and figure out how they went in order the little inverted triangle at the top, which gave you the number of which part of the crossover it was. And then, of course, all the strife strike files, uh, trading cards in there. Uh, and if once I finally collected that whole thing and read it, so like that was my first major X-Men story. It is all about Cable and Strife and the Summers family, which ties into tonight. And it just was like. I was like, this is what comics can be like insane time travel, big ideas, huge drama, family, conflict, fighting everything in the world. And it just lit my brain on fire. And uh, I collected ever since I started showing my portfolio around at San Diego Comic-Con in when I was 15 years old in 1999. And it took me roughly another 15, 16 years uh, before I got into comics. And that's kind of the short of a very long story. And there's always a lot of twists and turns on the way. You and I have had some conversations about life journey. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there are there are so many characters and so many things I want to cover on this show. But when I started this channel, I wanted to cover the supplementary 60s stuff the most. Yep. The supporting characters, the characters who wouldn't quite qualify for a trial. Like, I want to give Red Raven his due sometime, and I'll get there, you know. <laughs> but I've done the Xaviers, and I've done the Greys, and when I'm when I'm contacting guests, I got to find just the right fit. Uh, and you were so happy to tackle perhaps one of the most complicated stories uh, that we're going to cover on this channel specifically, which is the Summers family. Yes. What is your connection to this insane comic book franchise that involves clones and time travel and more clones and more time travel and then more clones after that? <laughs> so many clones and time travel. I think coming in with Executioner Song, which is, you know, um, and I'm sure we can get into this, but chronologically, you had the first appearance of Cable in New Mutants 87 by Rob Liefeld and Louis Simonson. And Cable was, you know, this dope ass like cyborg warrior from the future, just a big chunky daddy. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, it's all mystery, right? You don't know who he is. You don't know where he comes from. You don't know what his powers are. And I know like, you know, the original idea that Liefeld put forth was that, you know, we, we his big arch villain in this first arc or two is Strife. And then at the end of New Mutants 100, it's revealed that Strife's face is the same as Cable. And I was like, oh, shit, how does this 
work out. And his idea was that Strife was a future version of Cable and that essentially Cable was fighting himself knowing he'd become the villain, which is actually a really incredible idea. Um, but, you know, Bob Harris and Jim Lee were pushing for a different idea that they ended up going with in uh, X Factor, which is where and Cyclops' child gets infected with the techno-organic virus and taken to the future, and that child is raised and becomes Cable and is cloned in Strife, and we'll get into all that here, but um, a lot of that is revealed in the Executioner song, which is a couple of years down the road, so I'm coming into it just reading the revelation of a climax of 20 years worth of story, because that factors into Inferno, and that factors into Alpha Flight versus X-Men, and even Dark Phoenix Saga, and all this stuff that I'm learning from trading cards and wizard magazines as I'm buying. And it was just like, holy shit. Like, this is crazy. What, look what? at all how this ties together. <laughs> Nowadays people can look up like a Wikipedia article and get yeah. that thing. But when we were kids, you had to look through every back issue and find every little piece of information. And it's so dense. Oh. I love the Summers family. By the way, I'm pretty sure you just called me a chunky daddy and I'm kind of okay with it. I called Cable a chunky daddy. <laughs> oh no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the Summers family is, and it's very essence, the most complicated soap opera franchise. It is. Uh, soap operas are nuts, man. I grew up with sisters who watched soap operas and literally we had one TV in the house. So there was a lot of like one life to live and all my children in my childhood and adolescence. Yeah. And I remember there, I've referenced this on the show before. I remember like a couple of stories with evil twins. Vicky from One Life to Live had like multiple personalities where she'd turn into different people i think her name was natalie had like this evil sister janet who like dumped her sister in a well and then like got plastic surgery to look like her sister so that she could pretend to be her and it went on for months and then i remember when the cable strife shit happened in the comics i was like oh this is soap opera this is what yeah. i'm looking at and i hadn't read the claremont stuff at that point right because i was collecting yeah. 90s you go back to the madeline prior of it all and everything that's constantly changing and shifting in the very first episode of my podcast i have a statement where i say x-men number one is very simple but it gets very complicated particularly when it comes to the summers family and this is the uh this is the full circle moment we yeah. will forever on this show in every episode we record in the future reference this insane family uh, <laughs> and we've we've really only dug deep on it on a couple of spaces I've done a review of X-Men minus one and Cable minus one, and I've done the trial of Hal Havoc. Okay. Uh, but other than that, like we have only scratched the surface about how insane it is. And when I was doing my research for this episode, it was crazier than I remembered because there was oh, yeah. stuff that I was like, oh yeah. So let's open with one paradox that I had completely forgotten about. Yeah. It's 1996 and Peter Milligan and John Polyon have given us the series, The Further Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. And I'm not even going to explain where this title comes from because it's already complicated. But we go back to the year time travel wise in 1859. There's a time traveling woman named Tanya Trask or Madame Sanctity. And you can go back and hear my episode with Demanda Martini on her. And she's living in the far future with Rachel Summers, who's the daughter of Cyclops and Jean Grey from an alternate timeline. And Cable is there. This is Nathan Summers, the time-traveling son of Scott Summers and Madeline Pryor, who's the clone of Jean Grey. And Cable's going to end up going back into the past, where Tanya Trask was from in the first place, which is our present, but only after growing up in the far future, which is what was meant to be all along. Now, in this series, Madame Sanctity has gone back to the present, collected Cyclops and Jean Grey, and sent them to live in bodies of their ancestors in the past in 1859. And this is the time where Ensaba Nur is set to awaken and power up Nathaniel Essex into Mr. Sinister. Again, I'm way oversimplifying here. Yeah. 
Essex is back then experiment, experimenting on people, and he's hired a group of criminals to bring him some victims, and he calls these men his marauders. And one of them is named Oscar Stamp. And the marauders bring Essex one young boy whose name is Daniel Edge, who's been mute ever since he saw his parents murdered. I know I'm covering a lot of shit already. I'm Cyclops like, I'm going to go back and like fill in a bunch of this stuff. Same, <laughs> but keep going. <laughs> Cyclops and Jean Grey end up fighting in Sabiner and stopping him from awakening back then. Like he goes back into his apocalypse sleep. But this would be for Essex's first encounter with mutants, who are Cyclops and Jean Grey. And these are going to be the mutants that he's obsessed with. And if he hadn't met them, he never would have cloned Jean Grey. And also maybe Cable would never have been born, which means never he would have never been sent to the future where he would inspire his parents to go back into the past in the first place. And this is a paradox. And the X-Men is full of paradox. Time travel is almost like this very linear thing. You got to look at the characters and the way they interact. Uh, Steve Steve Orlando's Marauders recently with the Krakoa billions of years ago, like uh, threshold. In, like it's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> so just when you think it's getting crazy, you got to realize that Cyclops and Jean Grey impressed the Marauders street gang also. And so in 1859, Oscar Stamp and Danny, Danny Edge, who he's now claiming as his son, emigrate to the United States. And at the immigration office, they had to choose what names they'd be using from then on. And they chose the name Summers. Oscar Summers and his son, Daniel, which then sets up the Summers family line, which never would have happened if Cyclops hadn't time traveled. So we got to open with just this insanity, this series. You're like, what the fuck? <laughs> Let me hear your thoughts just on this much so far. Yeah, and that's why one of the things I absolutely love about this, um, and I know we've talked a ton about this in person. I don't know how much we talked about it on the show, but both of us have grown up uh, Mormon. And Mormonism is like... <laughs> The high demand version religion of like Protestant religious, like Jehovah's Witness and Baptist had a baby and threw in a bunch of other shit. Throw in some uh, Scientology. Yeah. With some Scientology. <laughs> I mean, I could just, we talk forever about this. Um, but one of the big concepts in Mormonism versus kind of some other versions of Christianity is the idea of foreordination versus predestination. Foreordination is meaning like, you know, you are ordained to do this. There's a possibility that you should do this, but obviously it's your choice, but it's going to happen anyways. It logically doesn't make any sense. And predestination is like, you are predestined to do this thing. And that's one of the fun things about just kind of this introductory idea as it was introduced is that the whole reason the Summers line exists is because the Summers line created themselves. Um, you know, with Tanya Trask and Rachel Summers, the Ascani mother sending Cyclops, or, or by that point, Rachel was gone, but Tanya sending Cyclops and Jean Grey back to the beginning of everything in order to ensure the creation of Cable, who is their mutant savior, prophesied to fight against Apocalypse. And if they hadn't created him, he wouldn't be there giving them purpose to live. And it's just this 3,000 year loop that circles in on itself, maybe even longer than 3,000, well, maybe 5,000 years. <laughs> and just to interject quickly, in the Marvel Universe, you also have alternate timelines. Yes. So there's key events that then branch off into other realities and potential futures from so one singular event. And yeah. Rachel Summers is from an alternate timeline yeah. who ends up in our timeline and then in the far future who travels back to the past. Yeah, and but then and then she travels further into the future to become the Ascani mother that is then the one who sit tasks, you know, um, bringing cable to the future. It's like it's Listen, I love it. It's crazy. Listeners, I often dumb things down a lot and like really <laughs> take it slow. In this episode, we're just gonna like let our big sci-fi nerd hats like just yeah. you're, you're just gonna have to make notes and look things up if you need it. 
<laughs> we're getting we're getting so into the weeds with this, but it's and it's fascinating. And honestly, there's a there's an element of it that's born in tragedy. We go back to that that soap opera thing, right? In that Nathaniel Essex, the reason he started doing all of this stuff is he had a four year old son who died, um, and died. I think it was of a genetic mutation or something like that, and that's what gets him focused on genetic experimentation. He's doing all this weird Frankenstein-y shit, um, trying to understand. That's when he first comes up with the the theory that there's mutants and that there is, you know, evolving genes of, of a superior uh, uh, race, I guess you could say. Um, and it's, it's, it's enduring all these things that uh, brings attention from Apocalypse or in Sabanur. Um, and it's, it's all kind of just this this tragedy that you know uh, apocalypse appears to him and offers him immortality to work with him and uh, originally he rejects uh, apocalypse and goes back to his wife who has just miscarried their second child so again another tragedy but his wife becomes aware of all these horrific experiments that uh, he's doing and she rejects him and then she calls him sinister um, and it's because of this that he turns back to apocalypse who then gives him powers where he doesn't he isn't a mutant he's a mutate which is an important distinction that they clarify later in the Kirkoan era he steals mutant powers we'll get all yeah. that another time <laughs> <laughs> exactly but i mean it's it's this thing where like all these things happen that are just born out of tragedy and obviously there's so much tragedy in the summer's line and the gray's line which you've covered in another great previous episode but with stephanie are you caught up on your comics in the last couple of weeks i am not caught up uh i know can that i can i yeah. spoil what, what do you get? Which which uh, which storyline? X Men Volume Six Number Twenty Three. I'm gonna drop one spoiler for Please, you. Go for it. Go for it. Yeah. There is a scene between Mother Righteous, okay, and Doctor Stasis. Yes. Mother Righteous is the what we thought was a clone sinister who has a heart on her head, and Doctor Stasis has the club on his head. Yes. And Mother Righteous walks in on Doctor Stasis, who has cloned Rebecca and their son to have a dinner with them Shit, and, okay. she, and she reveals as she destroys the clone that she is rebecca essex what the fuck oh, i'm behind <laughs> ah, god damn it love this shit fuck you kieran gillen <laughs> actually that was jerry duggan but still like, that was jerry guys. duggan but yeah. yeah there's big stuff happening in uh, for all of this so yeah. let's let's introduce one more paradox from this vein uh daniel summers mm -hmm. grew up that's the kid we just talked about yes he married a woman named amanda mueller and here's a preemptive announcement it's not till later this summer but anthony Oliveira and sarah century are coming on to do an episode with me on amanda mueller oh i can't wait who is the black womb the two of them had a son in Gambit Volume 3, 13 and 14 in the year 2000, Fabian Nicieza gives us the next giant crazy. It's 1891 in London. Essex is inspired by the genetics of the Black Womb, and he gets her to agree to like get pregnant repeatedly and then abort her fetuses so that he can start to experiment on them. <laughs> Holy shit. And then Amanda gets caught and is put on trial for being the Black Womb killer, and Daniel leaves her and his son behind. And Mueller is a mutant. And now in modern times, she's part of the Alamogordo craziness alongside Brian Xavier and Destiny and Kurt Marco. And she eventually has another kid who turns out to be the character Fontanelle. And here's another preemptive announcement. I had to do this literally as a result of this research. Amanda <laughs> Martini and Justin Kosmachuk are going to come do an episode on Fontanelle with me. So you're going to have a whole summer's thing. Perfect. So now Black Womb is all aged and decrepit, and she begins studying mutants like Essex had. And she's still a threat in the modern comics. And she is Cyclops and Havoc and Vulcan's great-great-grandmother or something. And Fontanelle, who was born in 1950, in the same Gambit series, we learned that this fringe relative of the Summers, like they're great, I don't know what the, I, I, I'm not going to try to do all this, but she's a talented 
telepath who can like work precisely with memories. She calls herself like a dream therapist. Okay. And she once worked for a new son. Uh, the new son is an alternate Gambit from a different world. And yeah. she's reading the mind of Gambit and later tells Gambit about the Black Womb, who is her mother. Uh, so again, paradox, paradox, alternate timeline, paradox. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean, and there's, I mean, I was already like, we have to come back and do a Sinister episode, but like Gambit at one point is sent back in time and may, has a major interaction with Sinister and perhaps Amanda. Anyway, um, one thing, and I don't know 100% sure, I think I read, some of the research I read was a little bit different, but essentially when Daniel leaves Amanda, I think he takes his son with them and there is presumption that they go to Alaska because that's kind of where we pick up the Summers line at the next possible point so he you know the one the one child that, that survives uh which we don't have a name for at this point uh still uh which you know there's always so much fun of this like putting all the pieces together uh, you know and as we talk about this i think it's important to note that one of the fun things about comics and both of us are writers and it's just it's picking up the pieces as you go and weaving this narrative like so much of this stuff was never revealed linear or chronologically it's like random piece at a time and then the next generation of writer would pick up other pieces and tie them together and then the third generation would pick up and it's just over 60 years you have this which generally works fairly cohesively just this insane tapestry that is because there's writers who are just like yes ending the previous writer and filling in holes and it is a fascinating thing to look at in its totality understanding that it was just piece at a time and people just stitch stuff together like we've touched on the further adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix and Gambit so far. We haven't even touched the X-Men book yet. Again, we'll get into the black womb of it all. I'm not even going to cover this in detail today, but this is like the ancient part of the Summer's line yeah. and the time paradox set up around it. We're going to focus more on the modern stuff, but goodness, it's crazy. <laughs> How's everybody doing so far? <laughs> Uh, um, okay. some, I, I don't know do you, if you have uh, show notes or anything like that. There's some really great Summers family tree um, uh, diagrams. One of them on uncannyxmen.net. Marvel released an official one as well uh, that are just really, really helpful to track the insanity of all this. I've got literally a few of them pulled up on my screen behind where we're talking. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so let's simplify it for a minute. In X-Men number one, we meet Scott Summers. Mm -hmm. And a little bit later, we learn that he's an orphan. And then a little bit later again, we meet his brother, Alex, and learn he was also an orphan who was adopted. And then Claremont comes along, and it's a little while later when we get their story. Mm -hmm. One of the characters I really want to focus on, because we've done a focused episode on Havoc. We'll do some on Corsair and Cyclops in the future. Cool. But one of the characters I really want to focus on is Kate Summers, who yes. is the mother of Scott and Alex. We'll keep it simple for just a moment. <laughs> uh, he is, uh, Scott. Scott's the suck up. He's the serious focused student, the reluctant leader of the team. He pines after Jean Grey. He grew up in an orphanage. His brother Alex comes along. There's a complicated sibling rivalry. At a certain point, Dave Cockrum creates the Star Jammers. And we meet Corsair, who is the sexy space dad, who is the human leader of an intergalactic band of pirates. And there's a connection hinted at them for a while, but it's not until Uncanny X-Men 129 where we start to learn the actual trauma of their childhood. Now, we have covered on this show uh, this story before because we've reviewed some of Cyclops' origins. Yep. But there's a battle with Despair, who's one of my all-time favorite X-Men villains. He's the demon who makes you face your worst fears. 
And uh, Cyclops sees some of his memories played out. In this first appearance, Catherine Summers is named Anne, but her actual name is Catherine Anne, which is the same name as Kitty Pride, I believe. Uh, Catherine oh, yeah. Anne, I think so. Uh, <laughs> the Summers family is aboard a plane. Do you want to talk about what happens to these characters as they are flying over Alaska? Yeah, yeah. So they're in this small plane. I think it's important the fact that it's like a wooden plane. I don't know how much it's like, you know, a Wright Brothers plane, but nonetheless. Uh, and while they are flying over, um, an alien craft flies ahead of them and then fires on them. It's a Shi'ar uh, vessel, and the Shi'ar don't want their knowledge to be revealed on Earth. So the fact that they are seen forces them, in quotations, to take down this plane. Um, uh, so as it starts on fire, on the inside, there's only one parachute. So Catherine straps the parachute to Alex and Scott. She basically tells Scott to take care of his brother, Alex. Um, I don't know if we've ever gotten their official age during this time. In my head, Cyclops is about nine or 10 and Havoc's about six or seven. So that's right to me. Yeah, um, and kind of sends them out the plane. And then from their vantage, uh, the plane explodes overhead as they are kind of uh, float their way to the ground. And it's a little bit violent uh, upon landing. Uh, Scott suffers a head injury and just kind of wakes up at some point later in the orphanage. Uh, I believe at that point, Alex has been adopted out as far as when his memories come to him. Uh, he, and gets adopted, are... he gets adopted by the Blanding family, yes. I believe, while Cyclops is still in a coma, while Scott's yes. still in a coma. So he wakes up and his brother's gone, too. Yep. Yeah, so he loses his parents. He loses his brother. An interesting thing to note, and I want to circle back to this a little bit later, but it's a little bit too early to get into this. Um, Obviously, uh, uh, Christopher and Catherine, Christopher has parents, which are Philip and... Philip and Deborah. Deborah, thank you. I was like blanking on Deborah's name for a second. Hence the family tray I have up in another tab. <laughs> um, are his grandparents, uh, and there's we'll get into like who they are and why they're important. But I think it's really fascinating that Corsair, you know, when once he dies, uh, they don't go to their grandparents. Like they don't have any knowledge of or memories or interaction with their grandparents and their grandparents don't necessarily seek after them. There's like a weird disconnect there and it's never really been explored. But to me, I interpret that as there is a distance in the relationship from Christopher and his parents. There is a separation, a distance that don't include his children, which to me becomes important later on as we mirror successive generations of Summers and something I wanna get back to more towards the end. But anyway, there's that. And that's kind of where we set up with Scott and Alex in orphanage and adopted out and the, the parents being quote unquote appeared dead, which is very different than the reality that gets revealed as time goes on. I do think there's a story there and it may be that maybe had like it's been revealed in a line of dialogue somewhere that I haven't seen. And so if any listener is aware, send it our way and we'll we'll post it. But it may I, I think Philip and Deborah assumed the kids were also dead or didn't survive. It may be that the kids didn't know they had grandparents living or yeah. maybe that they didn't know how to contact them. Right. Yeah. But um, I mean, even as they grow up and get older, there's never any like, oh, I need to track down my grandparents. There's like it's. To, whether it's a lack of, of filling in the details or, you know, whatever happens to me, it feels like there's a purposeful distance there that eventually later gets reunited and healed around the Maddie Pryor stuff when Corsair comes back to Earth and brings his kid to Alaska to meet his parents and like it's all a happy family again. But this is two decades after the separation of the explosion. So to me, that there's that there, there's something important there to either be derived or intended. I don't know. 
I'm going to blame Xavier. He just altered yeah. their memories until it was convenient to do otherwise. <laughs> uh, now, this story, this origin story is recounted in so many Cyclops stories. But most prominently, if you want to look up the discrepancies, Uncanny Origins number one, X-Men Origins Cyclops number one, Marvel Snapshots X-Men number one, X-Men Prelude to Schism number three, and weirdly, Guardians of the Galaxy volume three number 12 with Teen Cyclops. Uh, it's integral integral to the understanding of Cyclops Havoc and Corsair, even though it's a story that comes much later in continuity. Yeah, now, and I'll just I'll pause really quick and not to like cross promote, but I realize I understand probably a lot of your listeners also listen to Connor Goldsmith's Cerebro podcast. And I know Connor's been on your show and you've been yeah, on Connor's. Connor and I are great friends. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm friends with Connor as well. And Connor did a really incredible episode with Jay Eddington over uh, talking about uh, the history of Cyclops. And in there, Jay comes from the perspective of of uh, Cyclops being on the autism spectrum and talks about how Jay sees that as someone who who is on the spectrum as well. Uh, how Cyclops's perception and and how he processes and interacts with people uh, fits that that uh, paradigm and criteria. And it's really really fascinating. It is an entire you know as as all Connor episodes are, and probably this one will be like four hours long. So <laughs> go check it out for like some of that minutia and then an analysis based from that uh, point of view. And it's really really fascinating. But that is their thing, and go listen to that. So Connor and I just did four hours on mimic together like last week. So yeah. yes. <laughs> we can go on for a while, but he's he's amazing. He's a great guy, and you are welcome to cross promote all you like. Uh, now, Kate Summers to me, and we're going to talk more about her in a second. Is sure. one of the big unexplored characters in the X Men yes. franchise because yes, we have a ton about the Summers family, but literally nothing about her, her background, her motivations. There's so much about this character I would love to see explored because Cyclops and Havoc are half her, and yeah. all we get is this tragedy. Mm -hmm. uh, all right, Philip, sum up the Shi'ar Empire in 30 seconds or less. Go. <laughs> I mean, Shi'ar Empire is a galactic empire by these you know, bird-like human people run by the near Mani clan, typically. I think Emperor Deken is in charge when we first meet them, and he has a sister named Lalandra, and there's another sister, Deathbird. I can't remember Deathbird's. Uh, there we are there we are uh, and uh, you know Deken is kind of a despot when we first meet them and Lalandra kind of becomes like a freedom fighter fighting for the freedom of her people and they are integral to the X-Men history especially as it relates to the Summer family and the Xavier family it is Game of Thrones in space yeah. spanning over billions of light years but all of the royal guard have superpowers mm -hmm. if, if we're oversimplifying but these <laughs> characters are very integral to the X-Men franchise Franchise. It's one of the biggest ongoing story plot lines is like the fate of this giant empire with its secret societies and like fraternities and behind the scenes uh, knights errant Eric the Red and the Imperial Guard and the Shi'ar Death Commandos and the Kin Crimson and like there's all these crazy giant stories. Uh, I've also planned an Eric the Red episode for this Patreon as well. Oh, so we'll, we'll get there. But there's yeah, there's a lot of history with so these much. guys. It's It's huge. Uh, we also have a huge presence of Mr. Sinister through a lot of this story all through retcon. I got to review X Factor number uh, minus one on my show okay. where we look at the time Havoc was adopted and Mr. Sinister like manipulated him into killing a kid and like removed his memories. 
We also see him running the orphanage where Cyclops lives. We see him or a clone of him living next to Cyclops's grandparents in Alaska. Uh, so there's a lot of manipulation from this character, probably of which we barely scratched the surface. And we're going to get more to him later, but we're going to keep this slightly focused on the summers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thoughts on the Shi'ar and or Sinister? As we keep that brief. <laughs> yeah, right? I, I think that's one of the interesting interesting things about the X-Men franchise as a total is there's just such a wide spectrum of types of stories told. There is intergalactic space stuff. There's body horror stuff. There is grounded superhero stuff. There is uh, demons and and limbo. And I mean, there's just such a wide... It's funny, I've been, I've been reading slash rereading the Claremont stuff. And it's it's really fascinating to see what the big like shifts and twists are like, oh, we'll be in space for 10, 15 issues. And now we'll be with the Morlocks, really grounded human stuff. And now we're going to switch over into magic and limbo and Belasco. And um, so I think that Shi'ar stuff really falls into that really large scale cosmic uh, space. And there's been writers who've done incredible stuff with it. I remember in the mid aughts, uh, Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning did a whole bunch of like Realm of Kings and and in you know in humans and all sorts of stuff tying into the Shi'ar, which tied into Ed Brubaker's X Men run. And like for some also, reason, but also tied in Darkhawk. Quite <laughs> tied in Darkhawk. Like there was so much stuff happening, and I found myself in that area of Marvel Comics, which is not as discussed or reflected on anymore. But I'm like, it was so good. It is unfair how good that era was, and I'm like, more people need to talk about that. And the Shi'ar were so integral to all that stuff. So that was really my favorite Shi'ar stuff of that time. Uh, and then yeah, yeah, the uh, the uh, the sinister stuff. You know, he there's a, there's an interesting thing, and it was in I think this uh, the issue that you reference and other times where Sinister had this back and forth about which brother was more powerful, and that's the reason he separated them, thinking together they're too strong. But if I separate them, they'll be okay. So he orchestrated the adoption um, because he was like, oh, Scott's the one to focus. And then later, I think it's in this X Factor minus one, he he comments that Alex might be the most powerful bro brother. Um, you know, Alex ends up, you know, killing someone at the time and then Sinister erases all of their memories. And you went over this already. Um, and it's really, really kind of, uh, again, interesting uh, that'll kind of tie into something I want to talk about later with the way he's separating them and exacerbating trauma to keep them at bay so he can manipulate them. Uh, and yeah. Complete, complete side note. But I think the only other family at Marvel that might be similarly complicated is the Richards family. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, like Reed Richards and his dad, but also Franklin and all his alternate versions but also they're related to kang the conqueror which also yeah. right like it goes that stuff goes on forever and ever that might be the only other one that's this dense and this difficult to understand but, and you know that later ties into the whole summers family which we'll touch upon right. we'll get on that in a minute. one of the reasons i bring it up franklin richards there's been like four different adult versions of him in the present but also valeria but also doom yeah we we won't get into any of that today but it's very very complex Okay, let's delve into Uncanny X-Men 155 for just a moment. We're going to spend a little bit of time here. Cyclops and Corsair have their first big confrontation. And I want to read this part out loud. Do you want to read Corsair or Scott? Um, um, I'll do Scott. I'll do Scott. Okay, so I will play the space daddy. <laughs> I'd been away. So Cyclops finally confronts him. You know, like, why, you know, why, why did you leave us, basically? I'd been away from Earth for too long. I had no intention of going back. And since you'd obviously forgotten me, Scott, I thought it better not to reveal myself. As a father, you'd see once briefly and probably never again. I thought only to spare you pain. Did you? 
Are you sure you weren't motivated by guilt and shame at coming face to face with the children you've deserted? That's unfair, Scott. Your mother and I didn't leave you by choice. We were kidnapped by the Shi'ar. 20 years ago, and in those two decades, did you ever even try to learn what happened to Alex and me? We thought we knew. When our plane was attacked, Anne strapped you two into a parachute and shoved you out the escape hatch. We saw the canopy catch fire. We thought you were both killed in the fall. Later, Anne, your mother, was executed before my eyes, and I was sold into slavery. I didn't come home because I felt I had nothing to come home to. Is grief a crime, Scott? Is ignorance? If so, I stand convicted. Does that satisfy you? It isn't that simple, mister, or that easy. I spent 10 years in a state orphanage that was little better than a prison, praying, hoping against hope that one day my parents would arrive to sweep me out of there. I tried to remember the kind of man you were, tried to become a son you could be proud of, and what do I find? My dad's a pirate, as ruthless and cold-blooded as the villains the X-Men fight. Uh, okay, I'm gonna go into the next issue and then let's talk about this interaction. Yes, please. In, in issue 156, uh, uh, Corsair finally gives his version of the story in his own words. I was an Air Force test pilot returning from leave in Alaska, a camping trip with your grandparents to join Project Mercury as an astronaut. Your mother, Catherine Ann, you, your brother Alex and myself were flying an old de Havilland mosquito I'd rebuilt. We were following the coast south of Ca Cape Tag Tagatage when we got a panic call from Anchorage about an unidentified object heading our way. The next thing we knew, it was right on top of us. I tried to report the sighting, and the ship opened fire. I was the best pilot alive, flying one of the finest birds ever built. That combination, plus a lot of luck, saved us during the initial salvos. Unfortunately, the Mosquito was a wooden aircraft. That proved our undoing. A near miss torched the fuselage, and the dogfight was as good as over. We were over land. Anne strapped you into the lone parachute she could find, wrapped you and your little brother, wrapped you around your little brother, and shoved you both out of the hatch. But the sky was full of blaster fire. A bolt clipped your chute, and the canopy started to burn. Helpless, we watched you fall, imagining we could hear your screams. We thought we would die too until a teleport beam yanked us aboard the starship. It was a Shi'ar scouting mission. To them, Anne and I were zoological specimens, representing the higher orders of life on Earth. We were separated. On the Imperial Throne world, I escaped the slave pens and set out to find her. She was with the Emperor. My, estate, my mistake then was in trying to kill him with my bare hands instead of shooting him down where he stood. Guards came to his rescue. They wanted to execute me on the spot, but Deken had other ideas. And then we see a scene where Chris is walking in on Deken, the Emperor of the Shi'ar Empire, seemingly raping Anne, who's been dressed like Princess Leia style in like a gold bikini. Uh, I'll read Chris here if you'll read Deken. Sure. Yeah, the female is important to you, barbarian. Yes. Would you die for her? Yes. Such noble statements. The penalty for your crimes is death by slow torture. But that is too quick. I want you to suffer, barbarian, and suffer you shall by remembering this moment for the rest of your days. And then he stabs Anne in the heart with a blade. And Corsair says, 20 years ago, Scott, yet the memory is so fresh, so vivid, that sometimes I feel like it's only just happened. I was sentenced to the slave pits. There I met Chode, Raza, and Hepzibah. We became comrades, then friends. Eventually we stole the Starjammer and escaped. We've been fighting ever since. Fighting. I used to hate it. That's why I became a test pilot, then joined NASA. I loved flying, learning, not killing. I yearned to be a scientist, not a warrior. Look at me now. 
Okay, we'll talk more about this for a moment, but let's talk about Corsair. What have we yeah. learned? <laughs> you know, it's it's tough, right? Because my initial kind of reading of Corsair is like, man, you're a shit dad. Like, yes, he is. <laughs> like, I, I, if I were separated from my kids like that, and I'm stuck out in space, and they're spaceships, I'm gonna do all I can to get back to my fucking kids and make sure. I know what happened, right? Living with that question is like, what? I was in the slave pens, valid yeah. excuse. Yeah. I didn't want to come home because you thought you'd be mad at me. Shit excuse. Shit. And that's like, <laughs> that's Corsair managing their expectations, right? And managing their emotions. I presume that this is the thing, so I will act differently to shield you from the consequences of my actions, which we all know for anyone who's done any type of like self-work, it's terribly unhealthy and codependent and terrible attachment disorders. There's a certain amount of sympathy I can have in that Christopher suffered a uh, suffered a ton of uh, trauma, and you know, for anyone who like you know, in your day job and in the life that all of us live, trauma kind of alters and rewires the way your brain works. And there's a lot of difficulty in sometimes navigating unprocessed trauma. So I will extend the olive branch that some of the shit that he went through has really affected him, and he's essentially running from it the rest of his you know the next twenty years and doesn't trauma. But trauma in comics means drama and <laughs> yeah, cool, and it is juicy and delicious, and I love it. <laughs> exactly. And these are all fictional characters, so we can take a little bit of distance from worrying about the real life implications of stuff. Because again, like we talked about this thing in my last episode, like uh, sexual assault and rape is used far too often in fictional as like a way to motivate a man or a way to make a woman seem helpless. And I hate that once again, we see this, even though this was written in the 70s. But, you know, like, let's all try and do better in our way we write stuff. And there is a whole story waiting to be told about Chris and Anne in Shi'ar space and what happened to them. There's a lot that we do not know. Yep. Uh, let's cover some of the other stuff quickly. Supplementary material. We get a scene in Uncanny Avengers that shows a desperate Anne hugging her boys as she straps them into the parachute. Mm -hmm. Be bold and fearless, she says. Look to your hearts for strength to face the future. When you can't find it there, look to each other. Promise me you'll take care of each other. Promise. And then she pushes them out of the plane. Yeah. In Uncanny X-Men 175, Cyclops has a near-death experience and sees the spirit of his dead mother beckoning him to return to life. He wakes up calling mom, and this is the Madeline Pryor wedding episode or issue. We'll get there in a minute. It is such a good, just that one scene alone of seeing his mom, like just right in the heart, just give me every time. It's amazing. Uh, yeah. We also get classic X-Men 15, which is the Corsair in the Slave Pits backup story. Mm -hmm. Do you want to read the narration on this? It's uh, Claremont yeah. kind of exploring uh, through caption boxes, Corsair's motivations here. Yeah, Christopher Summers spent many a joyous boyhood hour enthralled by the adventures of Flash Gordon and John Carter, Warlord of Mars. With an insatiable passion, he devoured the works of Burroughs and Heinlein, Asimov and Clark. He dreamed of someday flying the stars, flying to the stars, exploring unknown planets and encountering strange, wondrous alien races. He got his wish. And we get another flashback to the infamous plane crash. Uh, just moments before, Scott says, is it really true, Mom, that Dad's going to become an astronaut? And Chris says, I've been selected for the program, Scott. That's the first big step. Cross your fingers, kids, and hope for the best. Maybe someday soon, Corsair will be waving from the uh, hello from orbit or even the moon. Uh, it also says, if you want to read that, uh, the next caption, this is another box we get. Yeah, Corsair was his fighter call sign, his homage to the freebooting swashbucklers of old whose adventures he thrilled from childhood to read or watching the movies. Uh, we get a scene where the kids get pushed out of the plane. It says, 
He and Kate were teleported aboard the spacecraft. The ship they learned was collecting zoological specimens for the Shi'ar Empire, Emperor's collection. The Emperor took a fancy to Kate. Corsair tried to object. His fool's courage impressed the Emperor, but his transgression couldn't be allowed to go unpunished. The Emperor felt death, any death, was too quick and easy, so he killed Kate and sent Corsair to the mine world of Al-Sabar. In the beginning he fought, but eventually he came to realize the transcendent truth of this terrible place that there is no escape from a prison that is an entire world. So he stopped fighting, forgot how to dream, locked all his memories and emotions away, became the most docile of beasts, the perfect prisoner. And then we see him meet Hepzibah and Chode and Raza, and they fight their way free. And we'll talk more about these amazing Star Jammers characters another time. Yeah. But we're really trying to delve into the complexity of how this has been explored and explained. And we'll notice a theme where Corsair or Chris is the one that gets the voice generally where Catherine and her loss is represented in like a sweet moment between she and her kids or Corsair grieving her, but there's never like a lot of time given to her, which is really important because uh, there's a lot to explore with this character. Again, one of the most unsung characters in the X-Men franchise, in my opinion, along with Charles Xavier's parents. Good Lord. But that's another time. <laughs> <laughs> and Sinister's involved in that one too. <laughs> Uh, do you have thoughts on this uh, Corsair flashback exploration? Um, I, I don't. I don't think so. I think you know the 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 Corsair storyline and kind of as we meet him and explore these things, uh, give us the sense of just. I don't know if it's a state of arrested development or whatnot, but he just he gallivants around like you know some some twenty year old just living out his fantasies, and that's not necessarily bad. But when you take it in context of the children he abandoned and the life he's running away from, there is both a, a tragicness and and a, a frustration to who he is as a person. And I think you know later on there is work that he does to kind of repair those relationships both with uh, Scott and Alex and then later young Scott during kind of the, uh, the uh, what do they call it? The <laughs> five era, something like that. So yeah, let's explore this really quickly, but we're not going to spend time on it. This is, <laughs> this is farther in the future. It's in the 2000s. Brian Michael Bendis gives us the time traveling X-Men in the yeah. present set back in the original X-Men, like number eight era. They're here for like a whole year or something. And I mean, there's like five or six years of publication history. They were a long, long time. Damn time. <laughs> and then they go back and have their memories wiped. But yep. there's a literal series called Cyclops, which is all about teen Cyclops going off to space and having like a buddy relationship with his dad. Yep. So at the point when Cyclops meets his original, like, or excuse me, in the original Claremont stuff where Scott meets Corsair, neither of them know that teen Cyclops has already gone into the future <laughs> to meet yeah. his dad and then gone back in the past. But it's something they'll both remember later once yeah. the paradox resolves itself or whatever <laughs> the fuck, you know. Uh, so we won't spend a lot of time on that. We also, you know, there's a lot of key moments with Cyclops and Scott over the years, excuse me, Cyclops and Corsair over the years, as well yeah. as Cyclops and Alex and that whole rivalry. But the... Uh, I can just hear Sarah Century in, uh, we just did the trial of Polaris, which will come out later this week. And she's like, dating a Summer's brother would drive anyone mad. <laughs> <laughs> These men have commitment issues and some problems from time to time. Oh, and we'll come back to that because I've got a lot of thought on the psychology of the Summer's family too, so... 
Okay, we're going to get weird again now that we've explored uh, Scott and his relationship to his dad. Because we're staying on Catherine Ann for a few minutes, we've got to jump forward to X-Men Deadly Genesis. And then we'll come back to Madeline Pryor in a minute. We're not, and Connor likes to go chronological. I like to jump all over the place. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> so things get very, very weird. Do you want to set up Deadly Genesis Sure. Yeah. So in 2006, uh, Ed Brubaker is kind of like hot off the Winter Soldier stuff, and it is one of the best Captain America runs of all time. Yeah. Uh, and he gets brought over to the X office and run, and he's the head writer for X Men for quite a few years. But the first thing he does is a mini series called Deadly Genesis, and Deadly Genesis it's sort of like his hoxpox. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's very. It's like his setup for the for the the next chunk of his run, um, and essentially it, it tells the story of what happened between when the original five were captured on Krakoa and before he sent the giant size X-Men, which was giant size X-Men number one and Uncanny X-Men 94, back to rescue that team. And he creates an entire story about a team of mutants that Moira was raising and training um, that Charles essentially absconds, sends over, even though they are unprepared and untrained, they all get slaughtered and appear to die. Uh, he feels really bad about it, of course, erases all memories, because what the fuck is Charles Xavier, if not someone who erases and manipulates everyone around him. So that only for the greater like, good, Philip. Yeah, Jesus <laughs> Christ, Charles Xavier. Um, and then, you know, and then he recruits his older, more mature uh, group of mutants uh, to go save the, uh, the original X-Men. It tells the story, I think, of how Cyclops gets off the island. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the setup for Deadly Genesis. It's written by Ed Rubiker. The art is Trevor Hairsign and Scott Hanna, um, if I remember off the top of my head. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, that's that's amazing. So what you just set up was the flashback stuff. Yes. Now, in the present in this same series, we have yep. a guy named Vulcan who's running mm -hmm. around attacking the X-Men. And Professor X is like, fuck, fuck, fuck. They're going to learn this big secret that I kept. And there's a scene where we get a flashback to Xavier talking to Vulcan. Uh, and here, I'm going to read this out loud. Sure. Your mother was two months pregnant when the Shi'ar kidnapped your parents. This was the reason Corsair fought so fiercely to escape the slave pens. He believed that Scott and Alex had died during the abduction, and he had to save his wife and child-to-be from the Emperor Deken. But when he tried to strike at the Empire, he failed, and in return, Deken killed his wife right in front of him. And the child she was only days away from delivering. Yes, he thought you were dead, but instead your near lifeless body was placed in an intubation accelerator, a common practice for slave breeding among the Shi'ar at that time. Within weeks, you were old enough to be of use to your masters, and the emperor's man on earth, Davin Shikari, or Eric the Red, required many slaves. So you made your way back to the planet that should have been your home and eventually came to be found by Mortimer McTaggart. Yep. So to oversimplify the canon here, Moira <laughs> recruited a team of her own, which includes Vulcan, Darwin, Petra, and Sway. And we're going to spend time on these guys. While <laughs> Xavier was training his own X-Men, the X-Men were lost to Krakoa. He, Xavier then took Moira's team, gave them advanced training, like by just zooming in, the in their brains. Matrix style, just download. I can Downloading do shit. Yeah. And then he sent them to Krakoa, but Petra and Sway were killed and Vulcan and Darwin were tossed into space where they survived in like suspended animation into the present. And now Vulcan is attacking the X-Men as a full-on supervillain. He killed Banshee. He later went on to 
conquer the Shi'ar Empire and killed Deken, and he fucked Deathbird and has a weird <laughs> alien egg baby that has never been shown on panel, which is one of the many offshoots of the Summers line that we will not spend a lot of time on simply <laughs> because their story is untold. There's yep. an unborn Deathbird Vulcan baby out there in an egg yeah. in space somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a crazy story that fundamentally changes the Chris and Kate stuff from the past. Let me yes. hear your thoughts. I think one of the interesting things about this one is when Fabian Nitziesa was writing X-Men in, I think it's X-Men 22 or something like that. It is a scene where Cyclops is back home in Alaska talking to his grandparents. He meets Nathaniel Essex or whoever is running the uh, orphanage that he grew up in. It's revealed to be Mr. Sinister and Mr. Sinister says something. I, about I think uh, I think he's going by Michael Milbury here. Thank you, Michael him. Milbury. Yes, yes. I think Milbury was his wife's name or something like that. Uh, so uh, Sinister says something about uh, such and such your brothers and Cyclops goes, wait, brothers? And he's like, oh, my mistake or something like a very like of the era sinister thing to drop. But so Nisiesa seeds this idea that there is another brother, or the third the third summer's brother. And we'll talk about kind of his plans in a second. But at the time, it was just like one of those like, what? Cyclops has another brother? And you know, uh, the, the internet, not internet, but the fan communities at the time for years were this rampant speculation of who could it be? And there was a big is it Gambit? Gambit. Gambit was the big one. Gambit's <laughs> the third summer's brother. Uh, and, you know, and Fabian had his plans, which we'll talk about here, which he was able to finally tell in X-Men Legends recently. Um, but it was just this really big mystery of who is it. And when Brubaker came, and this was 2006, that was 93. So what is that, 13 years later? Yep, yep. Um, he comes in and is like, oh, no, here's the third summer's brother and tells the story of a Vulcan who's Gabriel Summers is the name, is his, his Christian name. Um, and yeah, yeah, like I remember reading this at the time. It was a big deal. This series is very dark. Uh, some people definitely complain about this series that it pushes Xavier as a villain a little too far, where he's like consciously sending children to their death and then wiping everyone's mind about it. And but I mean, you know, it's it's comics. And see, it's the, see the trial of Charles Xavier on Grand Lane. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but it sets up cool opportunities for stories. And though I've never warmed to Gabriel as a character, it was like just this large and again it opens up the because one of the next arc that brubaker does in his x-men is the uh the rise and fall of the shiar empire where where a Psych uh, havoc and polaris and a team which included uh rachel summers i think and then warpath and a couple other people go into Dar space darwin darwin that's right. yeah they go into space to fight back against uh vulcan and that's when he you know it's this whole like year-long story and I think Billy Tan was drawing it. And it was like really, it was fun stuff. I really liked it. And then it set up a lot of the- uh, See the trials of Alex Summers and Lorna Dane on the Great Malkin Lane podcast <laughs> for more on this story. Vulcan yep. is a character, let's spend just a minute on him. Sure. Who, if you look at his history, was aged too quickly. So you, mm -hmm. you kind of get the idea he's missing some brain development. He has no bond, just in the way that Cyclops and Alex are caught up in their trauma. Yep. We have no idea what the impact of this guy. This guy's clearly like brain damage, but he's also raised by the man who killed his mother and then sent to Earth to be, uh, I don't know, a slave to Eric the Red, who is not a good guy, and yeah. then finds a home, right? Like he's part of this like mutant family that gets sacrificed and like left to float in space and is forgotten. So yeah. when he comes back 
And this is a character that uh, we see explored by Brug Baker. He has every reason to hate the Summers and every reason to hate the Shi'ar. But he's also a power-hungry, insane person who yeah. has... Uh, like major energy powers we'll keep it simple for the purpose sure. of this yeah. uh he's he's complex it's again it's very games of throny right he's mm -hmm. the the angry conqueror who's coming in and wiping out the leader to take over the throne uh he goes on to have a giant battle with black bolt and is believed dead and then he's back in the current x-men books and he recently died on mars like there's a lot going on with <laughs> But he's never really been connected to anyone else in the Summers family. He yeah. also killed Corsair once, but it was later revealed Corsair didn't die. But during that during that rise and fall of the Shi'ar Empire, he blasts Corsair to pieces. Yeah, maybe right. it's maybe it's later during War of Kings. Anyway, it happens somewhere along the way. Sure, yeah. yeah. Uh, do you have Vulcan thoughts? You know, it's interesting. So I have a family member of mine who worked uh, for years and years at a, a ranch that worked with troubled youth. And it's not one of the problematic ones that Paris Hilton talked about. It is one that does lots of equestrian <laughs> therapy, a lot of uh, of of actual, you know, like uh, therapy and things like that to work with with troubled girls. It was specifically and my aunt talked a lot about um, interacting with with uh, girls who would spent time as children in situations where they had no physical contact with anyone like as babies like raised just swaddled and never interacting with another person and how uh, that lack of interaction that lack of touch created uh, major attachment problems uh, for the these poor kids who were, were never shown affection or physical touch as babies and as little children and kind of the the problems that would manifest later as they had no attachment to anything and uh, struggled with empathy and connection and things like that. And I can very much see that in Vulcan in the situations that he had where, you know, he's done terrible things. He is, you know, but at the same time, like you pointed out, that lack of emotional uh, intelligence and maturity because of advanced things, never physical connection, never being raised by regardless of biological or adopted or found family, he was isolated and in it himself. And I would be really interested at some point to see someone explore you know the the way that he uh, finds connection and reconnects and and develops and accesses those areas of his life that were just missing he's very you know in similar in soap opera form he's a very tragic and sad character that i think has room and different aspects that could be continued to be explored more this guy needs some therapy but he's, he's fascinating <laughs> it's also interesting to me we won't spend a ton of time here but if you look at the guthrie family yes. you see multiple children who have wildly different mutations you see some families where genetic mutation passes on from father to child right or at least a variation magneto to polaris banshee to siren yeah with the summers you have three brothers so far we'll get there <laughs> We have three brothers who have a variation of the same power. Cyclops yeah. absorbs solar ra radiation and discharges it as energy out of his eyes, kinetic energy or heat energy, they sometimes call it. <laughs> uh, he names himself Cyclops, a one eye, right? Like a singular vision. He's like named after mythology in a way. Yeah. Havoc absorbs cosmic radiation and then redirects it as really powerful plasma bursts that are very difficult to control. And he's named after chaos, right? Havoc. Vulcan is named after the god of fire, and he is an omega mutant. Cyclops and Havoc are not. And yep. he can redirect and absorb energy on just this massive scale. And it kind of takes a fiery form around him. Mm -hmm. But they all have variations of the same power. And this is the genetics that Sinister is obsessed with. 
along with Jean Grey, who we'll talk more about in a minute. <laughs> so it's interesting, the genetic component of what it means to be a Summers, uh, but uh, but we won't spend a ton of time there. Uh, any thoughts on that before we jump to Adam X? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's probably some some uh, thematic concepts behind the idea of these people who are presented with all of these scenarios and situations and trauma and things like that. And they are essentially just absorbing the things around them and finding ways to redirect them. And often in, you know, violent or destructive ways. And I think there's a lot of, of parallels or a lot of into, you know, intuitive ideas in the Summers family about what happens when you don't process the trauma that you experience and or how generational trauma is passed down and has to be dealt with. And I think there's an interesting analog for how their powers function uh, as it relates to that. So with Havoc and Cyclops, their powers have a lot to do with their psychology, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, with Vulcan, I don't think we've ever seen that really explored, which is really interesting. Yeah. So we got to do one more big Kate Summers story, <laughs> uh, which is Fabian Nicieza's story about Adam X. Adam yeah. X, the extreme, first shows up in X-Force Annual number two. He's very 90s. He's got like ponytails and a backwards hat and like lots of blades that he can cut you and then make your blood burn basically. <laughs> and uh, he's an interesting character and it's hinted for a while that he might be another Summers brother. Yes. Then we finally get this story in X-Men Legends 1 and 2, which just came out in 2021, where Fabian Nicieza gets to very quickly tell this story in what deserved four more issues, frankly, because it's really <laughs> packed together. Uh, do you want to talk about Adam X at all before we get into this crazy origin? Yeah, no, I mean, I was just aware of Adam X being an X-Force fan. Um, as a kid, I remember there was an action figure of him in the Toy Biz line. There's like an entire discussion to be had about how Toy Biz had all these random fucking characters, but like not a goddamn Jean Grey action figure. <laughs> uh, God forbid we have women uh, toys <laughs> um but yeah, yeah like i wasn't really aware of too much beyond just like the concept of who he was until it came out years and years later that that was fabian's plan was he was going to be the third summer's brother um and it was like oh that was an interesting choice but you know i i'm excited to talk a little bit about i'm, I'm glad that they finally allowed fabian to have a chance to to write uh, the story in a truncated version of what he had intended to go along. And one of the cool things about Fabian, as you listen to any interviews he does, it's like he had stories he wanted to tell and he told them in every book he was assigned on if he never got a chance. Like so much of this stuff is not only in X-Force and in X-Men and in Captain Marvel and sometimes New Warriors and sometimes in Thunderbolts. And there's a couple of writers I know, like, you know, Matt Rosenberg or Donnie Cates, and I say this in a positive way, who like, regardless of what book they end up on, because so many runs are cut short or, or not as long today as they used to be, they'll just keep telling the same story. They'll just pick it up in this one and go here. And it's really, really fun to trace those roots. And Fabian did the same thing over years as he told his, not only, you know, Adam and, and Summer stuff, but also the Black Womb uh, project, which is, you know, I think Mike Carey kind of eventually finishes that stuff, but he told it over. Oh, no, there's more there. I just, I just yeah. researched all this. I, have, I just said, <laughs> I just said Fabian Nisi has like eight questions in an email. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Uh, there is, uh, yeah, and if you want to delve deep on this, you got to get into Davin Shikari, you got to get into Genus Vell and Silver Surfer and other points. <laughs> like it's all over, it's all over the Marvel Universe. Uh, I'm going to tell the simple version of this story. Yeah. Deken, the Shi'ar Empire, has taken cells from Kate Summers 
and has had his scientists and the Shi'ar have the ability to clone like crazy. They have whole like clone people living on their like like in their highest councils. It's 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 this whole genetics like superiority thing. I, I'm really excited to get into the Shi'ar stuff on my podcast someday, but we're not there yet. <laughs> uh, but he's taken these cells and he's having his scientists experiment with mixing human cells with Shi'ar cells and creating things. Now, there are a couple of Shi'ar human hybrids out there, most famously Zandra, who is the cloned daughter of Lelandra and Professor X, who's the current empress of the Shi'ar Empire. Yep. We also have characters like, there's a character named Warbird from the recent Marvel series and a few others that are half human, half uh, Shi'ar. But in this case, it's the product of uh, genetic experiments, basically. Mm. And this character who goes ends up being named Adam X or the extreme is a mutant and he's half Shi'ar, half human. He gets sent to live with Davin Shikari and this cult that we just don't even worry about today called the crystal claws that served to ken so you kind of got to assume adam and vulcan knew each other they were both yeah. being raised by this guy who had like a slave outpost on earth but more on that another time <laughs> uh, and we finally get this story but we've never really seen a lot of interactions between him and the summers i would love a big story with adam and like corsair in space where they're exploring who kate was you know like the, the, yeah. that, that story would be amazing yeah. Uh we're keeping this pretty simple. We're doing a good job. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think one or two points to point out that you know <clears throat> maybe complicates it, but Adam uh, was not the only clone. They cloned a ton of people from Kate's DNA and then like either killed or they all died. He was the only surviving one. So at one that point, we know of, yes. yeah, at one point it's true. What we know of, yes, let's do the, uh, the uh, Kate core is what I want to see. Just a whole legion of Kate clones out there. Maybe uh, there is some summer sisters. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then like, um, I think at the end of X-Men legends, uh, the recent one, uh, after, we tell this story and there's a revelation to both Havoc and Cyclops. I think Cable might be involved uh, in like present in the story. We get this and then all of they did, you know, all of their memories are, are taken away from this. So even though X-Men Legends exists somewhat out of continuity with that little caveat of like everyone's memories are erased of this moment to allow Adam to go live his life or whatever. There is a really nice in that, that it could still exist in continuity and all we need is an opportunity to bring those memories back and throw everyone together. I think last time we saw Adam X in the Krakoa era was in Leah Williams X Factor run where he was doing something for Mojo. So yeah, yeah. And it's a good place for him. Yeah. Uh, there's there's a lot to explore here. And you guys, I know we're very complicated. We've already done clones and space empires, but I promise we have kept it simple. So it's going to get a lot crazy. Oh, it's only getting weirder. Let's keep going. <laughs> okay. I don't want to spend time on this, but there is a really cute story from 2019 in X-Men, the exterminated number one, which is a, uh, the second part. Claremont writes a story about the summers in Alaska. It's super cute. Go read it if you haven't. It's wonderful. <laughs> But now let's get into the Jean Grey of it all. Jean yeah. Grey has a much simpler family tree. You've heard me explore this in depth in the Grey family episode. But very simply put, uh, she's from kind of a conservative, quiet family. But she's also in a mega mutant on a telekinetic level. She's also telepathic. And she has deep connections to one of the cosmic forces of the universe, which is the Phoenix Force, which is an entity representing fire and destruction, but also rebirth. And Sinister is obsessed with the potential of Omega Mutants and what that combination can produce. Mm -hmm. so he determines early on that Scott and Jean would produce a very powerful heir, which is a huge thing in the entire X-Men franchise. We'll get there in a minute. 
And in case Jean dies, which she does, he creates a clone of her named Madeline Pryor. Now, Connor Goldsmith and Sarah Century just did an 18-hour epic episode on <laughs> Madeline Pryor, where this is explored. We're going to start from the place of the retcon. I know originally this was not meant to be a clone of Jean, but that's how it turned out. So we're going to yeah. go from the retcon place. Sinister sent Madeline in to get a job with Philip and Deborah Summers, who are the parents of, or grandparents of Cyclops and, and Havoc, the parents of uh, uh, Corsair. And they're in Alaska, and it's Uncanny X-Men 175. It's now 1983. Uh, talk to me about X-Men, or Uncanny X-Men 175. This is a beautiful issue. Uh, yeah, so I mean, at this point, I think Paul Smith is drawing X-Men, and he only drew maybe 11 issues of the series, and they are possibly the best-looking X-Men issues of Oh, all great. So great. So, so 80s so and so great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, and I mean, this is from like a side note outside of the story. The one thing that I really have noticed reading through the Claremont stuff is when he clicks with his artists, you can tell because he reduces the amount of narration and dialogue uh, on his pages uh, before Paul Smith is a, is a long, is the extended run of Dave Cockrum coming back post John Byrne and it's fine, but it's so heavily written. And the second Paul Smith steps on, the dialogue and captions reduce by at least 50%, if not more. And there's just this like smooth pacing to it that just feels like you hit with butter. And I absolutely love it. Um, you know, we meet Mary, we meet Madeline Pryor. This is the uh, 175 is the issue where Scott kind of makes peace with the death of Jean Grey. He marries Madeline. This is, oh, sorry, this is the last issue of Paul Smith draws and John Romita Jr. draws the last couple pages. He's the incoming artist and early John Romita Jr. looks very, has like a very Paul Smith flair to it. And like, I really love it. it it's so gorgeous. Um, but you know, in the, in the crowd are Philip and Deborah Summers. I think Corsair is there as well. It's a really beautiful uh, issue that uh, marries them uh, together and then starts fun honeymoon shenanigans. And, and like I said, we, you can go listen to 20 hours of, of uh, Connor <laughs> and Sarah talk about it. When, when Connor first put that episode, I was like, holy fuck, who's going to listen yeah. to this? And then over like the course of two weeks, I listened to the whole thing and it's great. Yeah. <laughs> it, it took Christy and I about a month to listen to it, but it was just loved it. We throw it on while we were working. So it's really engaging. Um, yeah, so I think uh, some things to point out as it relates further is that like somehow Sinister got a piece of the Phoenix that he used to clone Gene uh, Grey for Madeline. It activates later as we get into stuff with Inferno and whatnot. Um, and I've yeah. said this on my podcast like six times. I did an episode with Jordan Weiss where I said, Jordan, what's the Phoenix Force? And he said, <laughs> I can't talk about that because there may or may not be stories that change the meaning. And then they announced a Louise Simonson Jean Grey series. That's and right. I'm like, yeah. keep your eyes open because there's something coming after yeah. we record this. This fall, I think we're going to learn some shit that's going to change things. Uh, we'll see what happens. One thing that I really love that I think it was Jonathan Hickman talks about, because obviously what we're talking about today is just excessive amounts of continuity. Uh, and someone asked Hickman about like what is continuity and he was like continuity is the stories that people remember it's not every single little bit of detail that has ever been written he's like it's important to stick to the things that people have attach a lot of significance to so there's like lots of little things here that I'm sure if we line them all up don't quite line up but at the same time like the important moments that we gravitate to and attach are 
what becomes our both individual and then kind of broad scale continuity. And so much of this is where if you line it up, maybe it doesn't work, but at the same time in our hearts, we, we remember the important moments and those are the ones that kind of weave this tapestry of what X-Men is. And that's the Phoenix Force. Like it'll be a 500 million different things, but in our brain, we remember the things that define it to us, so. But Sinister has been a lot of things and Apocalypse has been a lot of things. Oh, so much. <laughs> so we're not gonna spend a lot of time on Madeline Pryor today because again, that's content for another episode. We're keeping this focused on the summers, but I yeah. want to point out a very recurring theme here that we introduced with Adam X. Yeah. We have a lot of characters who had their childhood stolen and we have a lot of other characters who were kind of advanced into adulthood, yes. all uh, Vulcan and Adam X and Madeline Pryor mm -hmm. who are given a set of memories. And I'm getting ready to do a big episode about anthropomorphism on my show, like this idea of endowing human qualities on constructs. And many people see clones as constructs, but the X-Men is full of characters who are technically clones, yeah. who are programmed with powers and or memories that are real full-fledged, well-explored characters of the team. Shatterstar mm -hmm. is one of many examples in a <laughs> way, but kind of. Anyway, there's a, there's a lot of this, and Madeline Pryor, that's her story that we're seeing explored so brilliantly recently in Hellions and Dark Web and upcoming in Dark X-Men. Uh, she is given a full set of memories. She is made a pilot. She's tossed into Cyclops' family. And here comes a grieving Scott because Jean has just died with the Phoenix. And there's this beautiful redhead who's also a pilot and also super hot. And she's into him. And you don't know how much of this is her will or not. Also, we don't know the story necessarily, but Scott meets his grandparents for the first time. Yeah. And it leads to this wedding uh, there's a there's a moment where Corsair is reunited with his parents as well uh, that we get at just kind of a key moment. Deborah says, our grandsons are handsome men, eh, Philip? Especially Scott. And Philip says, takes after his old man, Deborah. And Deborah says, I've never been so happy. And Corsair thinks, nor have I, mom, if only Kate had lived to see this day. I know we're, we're covering a lot of cover like stuff very quickly, but uh, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, I think it's uh, that that issue, especially the, the wedding stuff is just very, it's very beautiful, um, both artistically, but then also kind of this narrative moment as we're bringing stuff back around. Uh, and again, I love the Maddie Pryor of it all. Like she looks like Jean Grey. She's a clone of Jean Grey. She's engineered to be Jean Grey, but she is not Jean Grey. Her personality is so different. She is so much so feisty and just challenges Scott on everything. I love their back and forth. And I can, you can see why Cyclops falls in love with her. It's not because she looks like Jean. It's because, you know, she very much pushes back and help him get out of a, a point uh, in his life and, and kind of uh, a new direction. And he leaves the X-Men more or less and is like, this is where I want to spend my life. And this is what I want to do. Another giant theme in the X-Men is the idea of divergence, right? If an alternate timeline, the concept of what if, if this took place instead of that, look who this character became as a result. Yeah. And in the case of clones, it's very much that. You create someone at a particular point and then their life path and their experiences are different and it creates a different person. There's yeah. a lot of this with Wolverine and X-23. There's a lot of this with Spider-Man and Ben Riley and Gwen Stacy. Uh, we see this explored really brilliantly in a lot of places. We're going to come back to baby Nathan in a second. We're going to spend time <laughs> there. But I want to jump forward to X-Men Volume 2, number 21 and 22, where Scott goes to visit his grandparents. Yeah. The, cap the caption here, Anchorage, Alaska. Scott Summers returns to a home he never truly knew. And this is uh, Nisieza writing. Mm. He sees his grandparents, Philip and Deborah Summers, but he doesn't respond well to their warmth. 
and that lacking rips through his heart. Once he knew and loved them, but now he doesn't remember being bounced on their knees as a child. His memory of that is forever lost, but they are all the family he has right now, and he has matters of family to discuss. And I'll read Deborah here if you'll read Scott. Sure. You sounded tense when you called to tell us you were coming. I'm sorry, Grandma. It's It's been a rough few months. And he's been through it. We'll talk about it. <laughs> she says, well, if there's one thing grandparents can do for their grandchildren, no matter what age they are, is dote on them until they're spoiled silly. And they go back to their cabin in the snow, and Scott can barely remember it. Uh, do you want to read this caption here? Yeah, yeah. Snippets of past. His brother Alex falling into a snowbank, sleigh riding. No. Tobogganing with Philip down the, hill, <clears throat> the hillside. Was the air this clean back then? Did he feel this warmth inside no matter how cold it was outside? And Deborah says, Scott, we know you haven't been back since Madeline and the baby passed on. Again, we'll get there. Philip says, we want to do whatever we can to help, son. We know. And then Scott vows to tell them the truth about his wife and child and how they died and were reborn. We'll continue in a second. But Philip, following up on your theory from before, do you know why Scott and Alex can't remember their grandparents? You know, and I, it's, I sinister. Know. it's sinister. It's sinister. He had okay. his hands in them. He removed yeah. them because he needed them to grow up in an isolated environment where he controlled them. That's never yeah. been stated on panel, but that's the clear answer here. That that seems right. And yet, as we're going through some of this, I'm like, okay, so there was some interaction or association, but it's been removed. And the grandparents, I guess, were just like, well, there's no bodies, but I guess the plane blew up, so everyone's gone. <laughs> Uh, X-Men 22, <laughs> I promise we're going to go back. I promise everyone. No, no, you're fine. You're uh, fine. Scott, gotta go. Scott tells his grandparents about Madeline being a clone of Jean and about how his baby went to the future. And we'll, again, we'll get there in a second. <laughs> and now they've got a cloned son named Strife and they're in danger. And Deborah does not react well. <laughs> and she goes, we knew you and your father led different lives scott but we didn't know dear lord we didn't know and philip who has not smoked or drank in 10 years suddenly wants whiskey or a pipe (laughs) and then their neighbor comes over and it's michael milbury fucking minister sinister and he's been there the whole time so uh we also see them in the crowd uh uh when scott and gene get married in the infamous x-men volume 2 number 30 issue and then I want to jump because I want to wrap all the grandparents stuff up sure, yeah, yeah. before we get to the time travel crazy. Do you want to talk about X-Men volume two, number 39? We yeah, get yeah. flashbacks into the life of Philip Summers. Exactly. Yeah. We find that Philip Summers was a, a fighter pilot during World War II. And I'll kind of read the caption that describes the uh, the the story that this issue narrates. It says, he banks the P-51 Mustang to the right, cutting through the clouds as he prepares for a steep descent. This is the part that Captain Philip Summers hates the most dropping down from the feelings of peace and tranquility that flying gives him into the gates of hell itself as he endures another fiery attack from Luftwaffe squadron below. This is the part he hates the most, but even under the threat of a fiery death and the thought that he may never see his girl back home ever again, even with the undeniable grip of fear grabbing his heart and soul, Philip Summers is in the air, flying, and that means he is alive. Two down, one to go. Another kill to his name and clear flying ahead. Maybe not as many as some of the most renowned flyboys like Carson, Gentile, and Godfrey, but Philip only ever wanted two things out of this horrible war, to stop the Germans' relentless march of destruction and to get home in one piece so that he can fly again. The payload drops, the target goes up, another successful mission means he's that much closer to surviving the mess. Then he'll go home, hold Deb tight in his arms and warm the chill off the frigid Alaska nights. 
and every morning Philip Summers will rev up the engines, lift himself up and over the canopy trees which stretch as far as the eye can see, and fly high until the day he dies. And then this is one of the few Adam X stories. Yeah. Uh, Philip has been in a plane crash in Alaska. He is old and he is not in a healthy way. Uh, do you want to talk to us about this story? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of the the seeds that Fabian was dropping as to that Adam X is the third summer's boy. So in the woods, they build a fire. Adam X opened up, opens up about being alone. Philip responds with, well, I was just reunited with my grandsons a few years ago and my son as well. They've been missing for a while. It's a long and strange story. You know, Adam then kind of reflects on growing up alone and sounds like my Scott in a way, a good boy. Different he is, he and his friends. Scared me at first a little, but I learned they were just different. Nothing wrong with that. There are a whole lot of people on this world, Adam, who feel they don't belong, uh, that they're not a proper part of things, seems to be part of being a human. So Adam, you know, we talked about Adam X's weird little like blood boiling power. Essentially, he <laughs> uses that to keep Philip alive uh, through the night until he finally gets some medical attention. Uh, Philip has three broken bones and kind of went blind as a result of the accident. And Deborah calls for help and Cyclops and Jean rush to see Philip at the hospital. So we're going to leave Philip and Deborah there. And then we're going to start to get into the crazy because I promise we haven't even started. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I really wanted to delve in. My primary purpose in this is I wanted to look at Philip and Deborah and Kate almost the most okay. because that's the ones I wanted to spend the uh, like time on. I want to frame the whole Summers family, but sure. these three characters don't get a lot of exploration. And that's like really the point of this channel is to like really delve deep. Uh, before we lay them to rest appropriately, <laughs> is there any final thoughts you have on these characters? And then let's get into baby Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I do love that once kind of they're reunited um, with their grandkids and, and, and son, they are always kind of this presence in the stories. Uh, they, they do what they can to kind of fill the void and, and kind of uh, establish a new status quo with their family. Obviously, we can't go back and undo the things and it, they don't ever spend a ton of time regretting the time lost. Uh, but they do their best to be involved and be a part. They're at all the weddings of Cyclops. They're there to give him a safe spot. I really love the the uh, line that Deborah gives him about no matter how old you are, grandparents will dote on you. Um, and I mean, even that interaction that Philip and Deborah have with Cyclops, where he talks about the reality and truth of his life, like the 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 authenticity and story that he's kept from them. And though their reaction isn't great, it's not, you know, get the fuck out of my house, you weirdo. It is like, whoa, this is a lot. Let me, let's get a little bit of time to process. And they still show up and are supportive to the best of their abilities as they begin to kind of deal with that and not make it Cyclops's fault or Cyclops's responsibility that what he is bringing to the table is something they are not accustomed to and not ready for. Um, they it very much kind of fits within the uh, the metaphor of X Men of of them being a minoritized and a group that is ostracized and not understood. And it's just that the level of empathy and safety that we all need in order to create a space for those who feel on the edges of society or feel rejected or misunderstood by the people around them. There is uh, an issue of the unstoppable wasp by Jeremy Whitley. And there's also an issue of uh, the vision series from a few years ago by, is it Tom King? Tom King and Gabriel Hernandez. Uh, both of these are great. And they mm -hmm. there's, there's an issue of each of these 
where they sit down and explore the crazy of family history. In the Wasp one, she's sitting down and she's like, okay, so you're, because she's the daughter of the giant man and his first wife. She's like, okay, so you're my dad's robot clone who was also <laughs> related to this guy. And you're the daughter of Magneto who's related to me through your marriage to the Vision who's a copy of my dad's <laughs> robot clones like Engrams. But he's also based on Wonder Man who's connected to the Grim Reaper. Yeah. And the Vision also had this daughter, Viv Vision, who's my sister through this. And am I kind of related to them? And also, also Tigra had a baby with the scroll version of my father. So this is kind of my nephew. And like, she's really owning her family. It's really cute. And I want this for the Summers family. I want like Hope Summers to sit down and be like, okay, let's figure <laughs> all this out. <laughs> There's two big sections of this podcast. The first one is what has happened. Yeah. And this, the next one is what is possible. What sure. comes next? Mm -hmm. So let's begin. And we're going to be much, much less structured now because we're going to go just kind of conversation and thematic <laughs> rather than delving into the text let's begin with the child of scott summers and madeline Pryor, who yes. is this messiah baby that the uh the mr sinister was obsessed with creating yeah. talk to me about nathan summers <laughs> nathan, All right, so nathan christopher Charles Summers, I think is his full name. I, I think it is. And then later he adopts Dayspring Escani as his last name. He's got like 15 names at this point. So <laughs> um, yeah, so going back to Scott and Madeline in the early uh, Uncanny X-Men, they get pregnant and she has, she delivers a baby by herself, by the way. Um, alone in a kitchen. In a kitchen. <laughs> in the mansion. Um, and they, they don't name the baby for a little bit. They eventually name him. They call him Christopher, but he's Nathan Christopher. He's got uh, superpowers from birth, like a telekinesis. Mm -hmm. uh, and he is kind of identified early on as like a just massively powerful potential mutant. Which is uh, the Franklin Richards story again. But anyway, go on. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, and through the process of all sorts of shenanigans that we don't need to get in here, uh, Cyclops leaves Madeline to be with the recently returned Jean Grey. Uh, Sinister essentially has people kidnap baby Nathan and nearly kill Madeline. Madeline and the X-Men are presumed, they, well, they die in the Siege, was it Siege Perilous? Whatever it's called. Fall of the Mutants. Sorry, Fall of the Mutants. Yeah. Um, and then the goddess Roma resurrects them, and that begins the Australian Outback era where Madeline and Havoc develop a more close relationship. I don't believe it gets romantic. It might. It's I'm trying to pull so many years out of my head here. Uh, and then eventually, you know, it kind of gets to the point where uh, Madeline wants to reclaim her baby. And it turns out Sinister kidnapped the baby because his whole thing is creating um, a, a child that is a combination of the Summers and Grey Line because their powers together can create someone powerful enough to stop Apocalypse, which is kind of his goal. Uh, at least one of his goals at some point in manipulating the summer's gray line yeah we'll get into the apocalypse of it all but <laughs> apocalypse infects this baby one mm. of the big stories about cable and i talked to this about uh to ian churchill on my show briefly about this oh, nice. is the idea of uh mm. unrealized potential that can kind of burn you out we'll get into the x-man of it all in a minute yeah but yeah he's got a power that if he's not careful the way he utilizes it it can kind of fry him right mm. So Apocalypse, for his own reasons, injects him with something called a techno-organic virus. We are not going to talk about the technarchy or <laughs> trans mode virus today, but this is a mutated version of a virus that's 
when you inject it, it kind of spreads your like across your body into living circuitry. Yes. And the baby is going to die from this virus. And a woman named Ascani, which is formed by Rachel Summers, we'll get there later, <laughs> is has come back to the past to yeah. bring this child to the future at the order of Rachel in order to save and preserve his life, which is what always needed to happen in the timeline if the X-Men <laughs> were going to exist in yeah. the first place. Yes. So Cable is taken 2,000 years his Nathan has taken 2000 years into the future. And the reason his code name is cable, which is one of the worst code names is he's a, he's like a cable between the past and the future. Oh, yeah. I think an important thing to pause <laughs> on that is like, yeah, when Ascani shows up and it's like, I can save your baby, but the only way to do it is to take him into the future and you lose him. Uh, and just the pure like tragedy of that again, going back to the soap opera tragedy, but also like the real, if you know, cause these people are real to us, like the human cost of, um, you know, sending your child away. Because at this point, Jean Grey has absorbed all of Madeline Pryor's memories. So she remembers raising Nathan uh, before. And then now they've raised him together up to the point where he's like maybe three. I don't know. It's it's timey-wimey. Um, but like Cyclops and Jean have to say goodbye to their child knowing this will save him, but I have to lose him forever. So it's like, do I, do I lose him now in death or do I lose him in life, in a, in a life I will never be able to see? Uh, and it's just just heartbreaking and gut wrenching that 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 Cyclops, who lived, uh, grew up separated from his parents, has to then take his only child and separate him permanently, knowing the 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 tragedy and loss it is to be raised as a child away from your parents. And now he gets to experience kind of the other side of it, but not in the Corsair way of like, I'm just in the pits and I'm fucking cat lady Hebzibah. It's like, <laughs> I forever have that, that hole in my life. That will be the fact that I've lost my child. So Scott is in this future, not Scott. Nathan is in this future, which is like a war torn, devastated earth. People living off of like very like desert, uh, you know, bartering over water kind of, I don't know. I don't know the right phraseology, uh, but it's this, it's this despotic, awful future where apocalypse rules, mutants are on top. Uh, and it's very much, if you read the adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, it's very much a Christ story. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, he, this is the Messiah who's supposed to save this future planet. Now, Rachel, yeah. again, who we'll talk about ends up bringing in the future Scott and Jean forward into this future where they live in host bodies for 12 years, 12 raising, years. raising Nathan as their own child in this war yeah. future. They go by the names Slim and Red. Nathan does not know it's his actual mother and father raising him. There's a series yeah. of adventures and then they get pulled back into the past. He spends decades there, uh, has a whole bunch of adventures, and apocalypse in this ver in this future is like a desiccated dying thing who needs to like transfer his essence into a vessel if he's going to survive and he has this body or this baby cloned which is where the character strife comes from yes Whew, we're doing all right philip yeah, yeah i know yeah <laughs> i mean so Cable, when he arrives in this future, again, ravaged by the techno-organic virus, Rachel, the Ascani clan, doesn't know if he's going to survive. So they clone a healthy, quote-unquote healthy, baby from Nathan, which is now, now we've got two Cables. Uh, and then Apocalypse does kidnap uh, Strife, which is this clone, and raises him as his own to use as his own vessel. So now you've essentially got two Nathans in the future, one with the techno-organic virus, one without. 
Um, and there's and a long important. time where you don't know which one's the clone and which one's real, but that's kind of supplementary. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, with with Nathan and with Cable and this techno-organic virus, it takes a majority of his mutant power to keep it from overtaking his body. So essentially, he self-soothes, I guess you could say, in this separation state. Uh, so a lot of his power is dampened and or diverted into keeping himself alive, um, which kind of reduces his like, this is the most powerful mutant ever idea from when he was a baby. And he still is, but it's busy. Um, so yeah, Strife raises, or K uh, Apocalypse raises Strife as his, his minion. During this future, as Cable grows up, he meets and marries a woman. And I'm trying to remember her name off the top of my head. Hold on. Yeah, it's uh, Aaliyah. Aaliyah, Aaliyah, thank you. Who goes by who goes by the code name Jen Scott, which is a combination of Gene and Scott from like the ancient myths of the X-Men. Yes. Which is a little bit weird because if I was dating someone and they're like, I'm gonna go by the name Bruce Joanne, I'd be like, that's my parents. <laughs> I don't need to have sex with someone who wants to be my parents. But you know what? That's the know. future. <laughs> so the thing the thing with Strife, again, he is the version that uh, does not have the yes. techno organic virus. Table yep. is half metal he's half living metal and he has to use his telekinetic powers to keep this metal from expanding so there's a running theme with this character that whenever he loses control the metal will start to take over more organic portions of his body strife doesn't have that yeah. he's just really fucking powerful and yeah. again we'll talk about x-man in a minute but he's <laughs> the evil version of what the messiah of this future would be now both of these characters end up time traveling to the past but they're much older Cable, we will learn, has a lot of adventures in the present, but also a lot of adventures in the future. He's a freedom fighter. He also has a child named Tyler Dayspring with Jen Scott. And I think Tyler is not his biological child, but his child that he raised. And that character has blamed Nathan for some awful things. And he time travels into the past and becomes the character Genesis. Yes, it's also uh, important to note that Tyler was not entirely raised by Cable because he, again, was taken away from Cable. He was kidnapped. He's an apocalypse bad guy. So it's another, like, another generation of Summers families that are separated parent from child because of tragedy and other circumstances. So we see this repeating almost generational cycle of loss and separation and sometimes abandonment that all happen. We've also got Madame Sanctity, who's the character from the present and the future. We've got Chabert, who's from the future, but comes to the past and Zero. And like, there's a number of characters. This is one of the most prominent futures from the X-Men. Yep. That's an alternate future. It's not our direct timeline, but it directly interacts with our timeline in that characters from that future are in our present, which is yep. also the story of Bishop, who you and I are going to talk about in an episode <laughs> It's also the story of Rachel Summers. Yes. So let's put a big pause on Cable for a moment. Yep. We'll come back and we're going to jump to X-Men number 141, which is in October of 1980. This is one of the top three most famous X-Men stories of all time. It's Days of Future Past. Yeah. Uh, talk to us about Days of Future Past, Philip. Yeah, so I mean, starting out kind of just on like a, a comic book level, what I love about Days of Future Past is it is a two-issue story that has been turned into movies and cartoons and it is one of the most like imitated stories of all time and when you read it you're like oh shit this is real short it is not next next month we have a five short. next month we have a five issue limited series coming out about this timeline yeah like, yeah it's being told now but yeah keep yeah. going 
So it, it is a it is a alternate future where the assassination of Robert Kennedy, or Robert Kelly, sorry, Robert Kelly, who is a senator but a presidential candidate, essentially sparks like an escalation of human versus mutant uh, aggression. Sentinel programs gets put into place. Eventually, mutants get hunted down and wiped out and rounded up and put into camps, and it's super dystopian. Um, we can uh, in this future, Rachel, who is the daughter of Scott and Jean Grey, because in this reality, Jean never died after the Phoenix Force, yes. so Madeline Pryor was never created, which means Jean and Scott had a child, and Sinister never really got involved. But yes, yeah, in the <laughs> yeah, and she is their daughter. She has the power. She is kidnapped and tortured and brainwashed and branded uh and joins is kind of under the control of a mutant named ahab who comes back in later and is essentially a mutant hunting dog where it's her job to hunt down other mutants they she call them the hounds the hound yeah. yes she does that for a while something happens that it breaks that brainwashing and i'm blanking on the plot mechanics of that now uh, but she gets thrown into the camps uh, of the mutants, and there she. Meets I think it was. I think it was just when Ahab, who's the Houndmaster, was torturing her, okay. and then she broke free. Uh, but again, free. I'd have to read it again. Yeah, yeah. It's. It's. I'm, I'm sure there'll be like a Rachel Summers episode at some point in the future when we get to their mm -hmm. timeline. Love her. I love her. Uh, yeah. Um. So she gets thrown into the camps. She meets Nathaniel Richards or Nathan Richards. Uh, oh, Franklin. Sorry, Franklin. Nathaniel is backwards. Um, they together there, they become a couple, which is the only time she's ever been in a straight relation, straight presenting relationship in her uh, chronology. Well, except for Corvus. But anyway, right. <laughs> <laughs> they eventually have a, a couple kids that later on become another thing. But it's in these camps with Kate Pride, who's an adult Kitty Pride, and a couple other X-Men, including older Wolverine. They decide they mount this strategy like we're going to go back in time. We're going to fix this all. They break into a, I guess, a master mold facility and using a variety of powers, send Kate's consciousness back to uh, present X-Men, X-Men 141, and put her brain in young Kitty Pride. And it's her job to present the prevent the assassination of Robert Kelly, uh, which she does, which essentially averts that timeline. However, that timeline doesn't cease to exist because of paradoxes and timelines and X-Men. Uh, yeah, you don't understand that in time travel, if you change the past, it doesn't erase your future it just creates a different future it's a new future that's how the that. multiverse works <laughs> there is uh we'll talk i want to talk about rachel for a minute but there yep. is a series of comics running from fantastic four fantastic four number 406 through 414 that introduces a tom falco paul ryan creation called hyperstorm yes who okay. is the son of rachel gray and Franklin Richards from one version of this future who has now come back and is trying to destroy the Fantastic Four. We're not gonna spend time there, but again, this is one of those many like ancillary offshoots of the Summers family <laughs> line. Sort of like Vulcan's egg baby, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Rachel Summers is a character that is beloved to a lot of X-Men fans. She has a tremendous amount of potential. She's telekinetic and telepathic like her mom, but she has a very different origin story. She's been more associated with the Phoenix Force for a long time than she yeah. ever has. So she's in this future. She comes back to the past. She's with the X-Men for a long time. Then she joins Excalibur for a long time. Yes. Then she disappears into the time stream and mm -hmm. winds up 2,000 years in the future where she lives an entire life and becomes the mother of Scani and then arranges for her baby brother from this past life that yeah. she ever lived to be brought into the future where she shepherds him into becoming this mutant messiah that will go back into the X-Men's early history as, a oh, teacher, I mean, like... as an old man. Yeah. So this character is integrally involved 
eventually she becomes young again because Phoenix Force and <laughs> comes back to the past and has been part of the X-Men ever since. She's the current girlfriend of uh, of uh, Betsy Braddock or Captain Britain. Uh, she's going by the name Ascani now. She is an incredible character who's a rich part of the X-Men franchise in a way that Cable is as well. Yes. Summing up a lot of that very quickly, what are your thoughts here? I think one of my favorite things um, kind of in her history is early on when she comes back, she realizes her father, Cyclops, is Scott Summers, is not with her mother, Jean Grey. She's with Madeline Pryor and they're having a child, which is Nathan. So very much like her frame of existence is erased in this past. And it's like a very difficult thing for her. But when Cable is born, there's something to the effect. I don't know if it's at his birth or some point later on. She basically bonds with him in a way where she promises him, like, I will protect you. Um, and as you follow through her character history, she does very much that. Um, she <clears throat> goes back in time. She saves him from dying. She raises him. Not only that, she engineers his creation and the creation of her entire family line by having... Um, uh, Cyclops and Jean Grey sent back to the past where we started in the 1800s with Mr. Sinister and, and you know, the progenitors of the Summers family line. Like, Rachel is so much more than this, but at the same time, <clears throat> she's a character who spent 20, 30 years of publication history and thousands of years of storytelling time uh, living up to the promise she made to a baby. We also rarely get to see her interact with Jean or Cyclops or Nathan. There's a lot of this family that I think is really special. I really love this character. Yeah. We explored this a little in the Madame Sanctity episode as well, but Rachel's also the character that in this far future pulled Tanya Trask or uh, Mother Madame Sanctity yeah. into the future. Madame Sanctity is a character <clears throat> that's also she's the one that sent them back into 1859 yeah. right mm -hmm. uh, she's the daughter of Bolivar Trask the creator of the Sentinels yeah. and there's a lot to do with that story that has not been explored <laughs> but Rachel has crafted a number of time traveling stories with a number of characters and it's yeah. like really influenced our characters a lot Madame Sanctity sends the character Chevere back to the past and he like fails in his mission and then like lives in a stasis tube for 2000 years and then reawakens <laughs> in the future again. There, there's a lot of shit. <laughs> uh, I feel like we're doing a good job of summarizing like the themes and the complications of all this without getting too lost in all of it. But there's yeah. a lot of really special characters. Strife is an amazing character. Rachel Summers and Nathan Summers are amazing characters. Madeline Pryor is yeah. an amazing character. Let's talk about X-Men. Yes. <laughs> okay. Professor X has a son named Legion. We're not going to spend a lot of time. But he goes back in time, ends up killing his father, which then creates an offshoot. One of the many, many, many alternate <laughs> timelines. In this world, Apocalypse conquers the world early. Yeah. So weirdly, it's like Nathan's story in that the world has been conquered. Uh, Nathan Milbury, Mr. Sinister, Nathaniel Essex, so Cable's named after him? <laughs> uh, we didn't cover that. Uh, Nathaniel Essex is, uh, okay. Nathaniel Essex is, in this world, able to just kind of do whatever the fuck he wants. Yeah. And he creates a test tube baby of Cyclops and Jean Grey's DNA and automatically kind of advances it into adulthood. Uh, we're skipping over a few things, but we're sending <laughs> this recurring theme yep. with Vulcan and Adam X. Here is another Adam. baby advanced to adulthood, which is the same thing as Xandra's story. Good Lord, there's a lot of these characters. <laughs> 
this is also genus bell's story the son of captain marvel is that cloned body like advanced to adulthood quickly uh x-men grows up in this world uh it ends up getting uh, anyway he ends up in our world is all we yes. need to say and he, he survives the destruction of his world and gets into ours he is a wildly popular and very sexy character that was part of my sexual awakening go see my episode <laughs> with Stephen grant about this uh, <laughs> but he is the version of nathan uh of what could be without the techno organic virus yeah. And there he's he has a series that runs for 75 issues. He fights an alternate Madeline Pryor that he tries to fuck, even though it's the clone of his mother <laughs> that he's never met. He he's very integral into a lot of X-Men storylines, and he's the idea of that messiah complex that Cable has, but in our world. He's the younger, hotter, more powerful version of Cable. Uh, <laughs> this character has a lot of wild stories. The Age of X-Men is a whole experience. But talk to me about X-Men, Philip. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think I'll forever lament. I think it was Christina Strain and Chris Anka. At one point, we're going to do the uh, the version of a, a miniseries with X-Men where he comes out as gay. And it just <laughs> happened, which is a goddamn shame. Um, yeah, it's, it's just... X-Men is really fascinating and I think as it kind of advances further on in the story like there's a there's a a, a story where Threnody who's another X-Men character comes in they have a relationship they have a baby that Deadpool ends up killing so there's another like fragment of the uh, fragment of the uh, Summers family there see the Cerebro episode on Threnody for more yeah exactly <laughs> another... it's a crazy story <laughs> It really is. Uh, and then I really love that kind of with the the uh, Age of X-Men, which was a storyline that um, Lonnie Nadler and Zach uh, B. Thompson kind of spearheaded, is is uh, uh, X-Men using his powers to create a re reality where everyone is safe and no one is hurt. And, you know, obviously there's problems with it and it all goes awry. And in the end of that story, he decides to stay there by himself, kind of isolated in his his reality, kind of away from everyone so he doesn't hurt anyone. Because there's, you know, as with X-Men, he goes crazy and he's a bad guy for a while and all this stuff. But I love that idea of, of him trying to, again, solve the problems and repair and or prevent the hurt that he uh, he suffered himself, which ties very similar into a lot of the stuff that Cable does throughout his entire publication history. Well, and a lot of the stuff that a lot of the Summers family stories revolve around, which is yeah. the unrealized potential of ultimate power and yeah. uh, the impact of trauma in superhero politics. <laughs> X-Man's a really fun character. Sometimes he's overused and sometimes yeah. I just want him to go away, right? <laughs> there's like, there's, story, there's stories where there's so many versions of the same character running around that it stops being fun and instead you're like oh shit okay <laughs> i gotta keep track of this there the handbook guy in me has to like put designations of realities about where <laughs> everyone comes from and like keep it all sorted and it's yep. it's crazy you put x-man and cable and strife all in the same room and that's enough but you do multiple versions of the same characters and it's too much sometimes uh, yep. uh x-man is fun <laughs> yeah yeah uh are we okay to move on to hope we are yeah yeah okay hope, hope summers is something separate from all of the characters that we've talked about she is yeah. not a summers by blood 
there is a giant event. Go see the trial of Wanda Maximoff on the Gamelock uh, <laughs> and Lane podcast. Uh, mutants have been wiped out. It's the decimation. There's only a couple hundred left. And Wanda, through Chaos Magic, has wiped out the ability of any other mutant to be born in any reality or future. Uh, like, it's it's gone across the whole multiverse until Hope Summers is born. Philip, talk to me about Hope Summers. <laughs> Hope Summers is born, and I want to say it's in Alaska, but now it's like we've talked about Alaska so much. I was like, oh, wait, is that it's right? Alaska. Yep. Sweet. There we go. Back to back to Alaska and this family. Um, when Hope Summers is born, there is a giant flaming phoenix manifestation. There's an explosion at the hospital, and there's this giant race between Sinister and his marauders and the X-Men teams and all this stuff to be the person to get to this baby first, because she is the first mutant born post decimation and her biological mother nobody knows this is uh captain louise spaulding of the fire department in cooperstown alaska yep (laughs) Uh, or at least that's what we've been told so far (laughs) um so yeah there's this giant race to get hope uh and it's a big old crossover i think that one is is that one second coming yeah. Um, cause there was a trilogy of them and I always get them confused as which came first. It's actually really, really fucking good. It's Mike Carey leading that one and X-Men and a bunch of other writers. Um, so essentially there's this big fight over everything. There's, there's like bastion units sent back in time, Nimrods and all sorts of stuff. We're in Messiah uh, war. We're in second coming. There's a yep, lot happening through this so era. So much happening, but essentially the two in my, the way I remember it, the two main forces in this are Cable and Bishop. And Cable is there. <laughs> um, Cable is there to save her because that's what Cable does. Um, Cable, regardless of his his plots or his missions or everything, Cable is there to save kids, to give them the safety that he never had. If you look at kind of so much of what he does and who he is, um, and he is there to protect Hope. And Bishop at the time is actually trying to kill Hope because something to do with hope's birth leads to his future or also like that's the reason he the mission he was sent back to do is to prevent his dystopian future from happening but also maybe there was a mumadry in his brain uh yeah we'll get to bishop another time (laughs) yeah it's like we'll start bishop actually the next podcast we record um but yeah yeah so eventually at the end of this uh bishop takes hope and jumps uh, into the time stream to save her and keep her safe from sinister cable Cable takes hope. Sorry, sorry, Cable. I said I said the wrong thing. Bishop's uh, killing does. millions of people in alternate timelines <laughs> trying to murder this baby that Cable yeah. keeps alive. And then Bishop starts hopping after her. So Cable ends up in in the future in a timeline. He and uh, Hope doesn't have a name at this point. He meets a woman named Hope that they have a relationship together. They raise their daughter. Um, Bishop shows up and fucks up shit. Or yeah, Bishop uh, and uh, Hope, the adult Hope, dies. And Cable decides to name his daughter, their daughter, after Hope. And that's how she gets the name Hope. And also she's a redhead and you're kind of meant to believe it's like the rebirth of Jean Grey for a minute. Hope isn't a mega-level mutant. And Omega always means like unrealized potential. There's no upper limits to your powers. And she can mimic the power and regulate the power of other mutants and cause people to work together in what we call like mutant synergistic like circuits yeah that like keep everybody's powers flowing at the ultimate potential there's really cool stuff happening with her right now in immortal x-men by karen gillen 
she's also a very messianic character, much like Cable. She's yeah. supposed to save the present in the way Cable's supposed to save the future. She's yeah. a great character. Not a lot of people love her. She's a more recent kind of X-Men mainstay, but she's a great character. Oh, absolutely. Uh, what are your thoughts on Hope? What do you like about her? Yeah, I, I think, you know, with Hope, and this kind of gets to this thing that I've been I've been talking around the whole time. Hope we finally see the realization of a summer's raised with generational trauma broken. And by broken, I don't mean that the trauma is gone because trauma is never gone, but it's that cycle that we see kind of repeated throughout the summer's line of a parent having a child and a separation occurs from that child to where they're not raised by that parent and or their relationship has something that happens to them. That's Philip to Corsair potentially, but definitely Philip and his grandparents, there's a, and his grandchildren, Scott and Alex, there's a separation, but Corsair and Alex and Summer and Scott, Scott and Nathan and Strife and Nathan and uh, Tyler. And in that, and you know, and we, we, as we track Cable, Cable goes back in time to train the X-Force and he's just trying to save these kids everywhere he goes. That's why I always call him comics like best dad, because that's all Cable is doing is just trying to protect his kids with hope. He is able to keep hope with him. They spend 15, 10, 15 years bouncing through the future, escaping from Bishop, and they eventually end back up in, in X-Men times. You know, he does die, Cable, um, in saving her. But at this point, she's an adult or, you know, as adult as, as you know, X-Men get like 16, 18, somewhere in there. But without all of that separation, with that trauma finally like ended with Cable, Cable's constant mission, whether he's aware of it or not, is to end that separation of families, uh, of, of having, whether it's your chosen family, like New Mutants and X-Force, or your biological family, or even, you know, the adopted nature of, of Cyclops, or of Cable and Hope, there's not a hard and firm uh, definition of what a family is in X-Men. X-Men family is what you make it. Um, and with that, he's able to kind of stop that, and Hope then becomes, uh, you know, she's always talked about the mutant messiah for a variety of reasons, but I really love kind of, and I wouldn't say it's the denouement, but kind of like the climax of that in the Kirkoan era, where Hope is the linchpin for the five, the resurrection protocols, where Hope working as a circuit connector with all of these other mutants ends death in X-Men. And she literally becomes the Messiah or the savior by allowing resurrection to happen. And we can go to the Judeo-Christian uh, allusions to it all, but with Cable, and his effort to end that abandonment, that cycling of abandonment that happens in his family, um, he is able to allow someone to come into their full potential and power. We talk about Cyclops was limited in this, in parachuting down, the parachute catches on fire, yada, yada, yada. He suffers um, what I guess you could describe as a TBI, a traumatic brain injury, which affects his ability to regulate or control his powers, which is also a physical manifestation of the trauma that he suffers as, be as a result of the loss of his parents. So that kind of plagues him and haunts him. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna side, like, side all around as I get back to this. So feel free to hop in for comments along the way. But one of, the, one of my favorite comics, uh, X-Men of all time, and it's divisive among X-Men fans, and we could talk forever about why is Astonishing X-Men by <laughs> problematic whatever Joss Whedon and uh, amazing artist John Cassidy. And in there, they're in the third arc of the book, the Hellfire uh, arc, 
uh, Emma essentially deconstructs Scott's uh, things that he's guarded him. Scott has always come across, especially as someone coming into the comics in the 90s, where Scott is just this repressed, I have to hold it and keep everything together character. Um, she deconstructs everything and comes across the memory that while he was in the orphanage and in the hospital, he essentially decides to not be able to control his powers anymore um, as a as a coping mechanism to deal with the grief and trauma of what he experienced. And 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 he forgets that because of the tra the trauma around that he loses that memory and trauma can have a really interesting effect on memory. Uh, and then in her deconstruction, she removes that from him and he becomes kind of like just mindless for an issue or two. And when he wakes up, it is my favorite Cyclops story of all time where he doesn't have access to his powers and he is a fucking badass. He is shooting like, uh, you know, these these psychic projections of the Hellfire left and right. He saves everyone in the X-Men. They end up in space in the Ord World saga and all this break world or no, the break world shit with Ord and and all this and my favorite Cyclops moments are in that because at that point he has through this process kind of somewhat begun to process the trauma, not only that he experienced, but the way he inflicted that on himself, the way he punished himself for being things being out of control. He couldn't control his parents, but if I make it my responsibility and my fault, I can then control that and then I can feel safety. And with that undoing of that, he is able to fully tap in and access the potential of his powers. My favorite panel of a comic of all time is, you know, there's this whole Leviathan plan where Cyclops ends up sacrificing himself and he gets captured by the bad guy, Kroll or something like that, yeah, uh, yeah. and brought back to life. And Kroll's like interrogating him because he talks about this Leviathan plan and it's all this uh, smokescreen bullshit that Cyclops comes with up with to uh, uh, stall time while all the people who have powers can infiltrate in there. And he's like face to face with Cyclops who's tied down to a table or a clamp to a table. And he's like screaming in his face and, and Cyclops reveals that it was all bullshit. And he and this guy, he heals like, what else are you lying to me about? And there's just a panel that God bless John Cassidy, Cyclops just smirks at him. And the next is a two page spread where Cyclops for the first time in like six issues opens his optic blast and he fucking annihilates this entire tower it's and it's so a good flash of just this optic blast going out across the sky and it's a symbol to the x-men <clears throat> and the next page is cyclops standing up in the rubble and he says to me my x-men and it is the fucking best thing in the world and it's just because in that moment or through that process cyclops is able to begin to let go of the guilt and responsibility he holds for that and you kind of look at the way this this trauma and like the the potential of the summers has and as a thematic element we can think about maybe mr sinister was doing all this shit to repress the power because they're the ones who can kill him they're the ones who can fuck sinister up more than anyone is the summers family so let's perpetuate generations of trauma to keep these people so mired in their own scars that they can't uh, prevent what I'm going to do and hope it kind of is the manifestation of yes, there's trauma. Yes, there's shit, but cable does his best to end that line of abandonment, uh, or separation, uh, and allowed, uh, hope to connect to her family through raising her. And of course she, you know, there's stuff with AVX and all this stuff, but the, the resurrection protocols and hope being on the quiet council. And obviously there's so much more story to be there and there's sense of sinister shit, but I just, I see it kind of as like a thematic climax as we've worked to re-engineer and, and begin to uh, 
highlight these moments of healing that happen throughout this entire family and the potential that can come with healing. And now Cyclops, you know, as his power returns at the end of Astonishing, he has to put his visor back on because that's the thing about trauma and scars is you're never fully gone with them. They're there and you learn how to manage them. But I feel like Cyclops from that point on was a very different character than the repressed and anxious and have to keep everything in control 90s. And obviously Grant Morrison did a lot to that, but I think I just love where that goes and kind of that's kind of what Feels. When I host it, you are officially invited to be on the jury of Scott Summers. <laughs> there is, a, there is a, a that's that's the one of the most anticipated ones. So that's a, that's a coveted spot. <laughs> <laughs> I I love hearing your passion for this character. One of the reasons Hope stands out, and I'll be quick here, is sure. a lot of the summer stuff is father and son storylines. Yep. Of course, Corsair to Alex, Corsair to Scott, Scott mm-hmm. to I mean Rachel being the outbreak. Sure. But uh, you know, Scott to Nathan, Nathan to Tyler. Uh, uh, then you have uh, the father-daughter relationship between yep. Nathan and Hope, and it's a good one. But it's also time travel crazy. Right? <laughs> I'm going to cover this part briefly. Uh, there are a number of Summers characters that are in other realities that have never come to our reality. Yep. One of the most popular is Ruby Summers, who is ah, Ruby. Bishop Future. She's the daughter of uh, Cyclops and Emma Frost, who has like ruby skin and optic blasts. In the Mutant X Future, which is a long series that ran, Alex is with Madeline Pryor, and they have a child named uh, Scott uh, Charles Summers, who is a very powerful like precognitive mutant, who also has like telepathy and optic blasts. Uh, we see another future where Havoc and the Wasp have a child named Katie Summers, who is apparently now a captive of Kang the Conqueror, and they've maybe forgotten her. That's a wild story. We're not going to spend time there today. <laughs> but she's also a mutant who can change her size and give off a mm-hmm. stings because her mom's the Wasp. Yeah. There is one reality in Millennial Visions referenced where Scott and Jean have children named Jeanette and Charles. Oh. Uh, there's also a reality where Wolverine and Jean have a daughter named Catherine in the Amazing Spider-Man Renew Your Vows world. Right, yeah. probably have not covered them yet. But there are a number of other uh, characters out there tied to the Summers. But I think we briefly mentioned them all. Maybe the most obscure being the X-Man Threnody Baby and the Vulcan Deathbird Egg Baby. <laughs> oh, there's, there's, there's one more that I found through my research. And Ooh, that's, what did I miss? Uh, Sraven, I think his name is, where Sinister got genetics from Summers family and Grey family combined with Craven the Hunter and the Carnage symbiote and made a creature called Sraven or something. It was like an amazing... We talked about Scraven. I think so. Yeah, yeah. In my uh, in, in my uh, review of X Men Spider Man number yes. one, it's yeah. uh, oh, oh, a crazy character. <laughs> so I think that's maybe the only tangentially related one that we maybe haven't touched on. Your giant nerd brain is wonderful, <laughs> dude. I was I was going down so many YouTube rabbit holes. It's intimidating as shit to be on an X Men podcast and not know everything in the world. Well, especially this topic. My friend, there's a number of themes standing out, and we did a great job at being thorough, but also being succinct. One of the questions I love to ask at the end of these is, what stories do we need? I need a Catherine Summers story. Yeah, yeah. I want more Summers family reunions. I definitely, I kind of don't want more crazy, oh God, 
there's a story where teenage cable comes from the past and murders his uh, like grown-up old man self but then also lives on krakoa with his parents and hope but then here's an old cable comes back like we we, i promise we kept it simple Uh, i definitely i don't necessarily want more time travel crazy i want more exploration of what's already there there's a lot of potential i want to see these characters interact and I love uh, the first run of X-Men after Hawkspox was kind of about the Summers family. We yeah. see Vulcan interacting and, and figuring out who he is. We see Cyclops and Jean in a thruple with Wolverine and they're living on the moon and Rachel's one room over. And uh, there's there's a lot left to these characters to explore. And there's a lot of really special stories that revolve around this. Uh, yeah. What about your thoughts? What are the stories we need? A uh, clear explanation of Sinister, for fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is a really good question. And like a couple of these, like what we need are like things I've been like, yes, I'm going to pitch that someday. So I don't want to get too much into that. I think just the opportunity of of some of these characters to, because of who they are and the separation, I would love to see like a Cable and Maddie series or some sort of story where son and mother are reunited in a way that allows them to kind of explore and talk about these things. Uh, through the end of Dark Web recently, Jean was able to return and give her memories she had of raising Nathan and interactions with Cable back to Maddie so she could experience that that uh, aspect of motherhood that was lost to her because of Inferno and, and her death for being dead for so long. Um, so yeah, but I, I think the 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 point of, of Kate would be fantastic. Maybe let's like if we could just see like what well, well, what's what's Deborah's deal? Like we don't know anything about Deborah either. Like uh, you know, she was she's probably a badass to put up with all the shit she put up with. So there there's like a story where like Kate Summers has a brother, but then we learn that it's fucking Fabian Cortez or something. <laughs> like, there's Cortez. this whole other side of the family uh, that we never knew about. The Grays was really simple to explore compared yeah. to the Summers. Yeah, uh, but when you stack them all up next to each other, there's a lot of complications. The only one that's similarly complicated, I Gambit's pretty complicated. Xavier's pretty complicated. Yeah. But when you get into the time travel crazy, that's where it gets <laughs> nuts. Uh, the the themes that we pointed out, I don't know that I necessarily realized until we talked. The idea of the clones uh, mm-hmm. being a copy of someone who diverges, yeah. uh, being the 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 idea of unrealized potential. Uh, the concepts of fatherhood. There's a lot of really powerful themes here. And there's a reason yeah. we love these characters in the way that we do. Uh, thank you, Chris Claremont. Thank you, Fabian Nicieza. Thank you to many other incredible writers who take these yeah. themes and run with it. Uh, God, Phil, this has been amazing. Do you have any concluding <laughs> thoughts before we wrap up? Um, no, I think kind of my 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 long-winded, uh, you know, side, side note about uh, the potential and trauma and processing and all that stuff is kind of probably the last thing I really need to say. It's kind of what's always on my mind as and you know. thank you for sharing that because that teaches oh. me a lot about you and the way <laughs> you view all this too. You know what I mean? It's special. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, uh, being similar ages and, and, and a lot of uh, life things are similar. I think I had to... <laughs> I had to re-examine and redefine a lot of things as I became a parent. And obviously that's not the only important aspect of a life and you don't need to have children or be a parent in order to do these things. It was just the kind of the catalyst for me to start to examine yeah. uh, my life and, and things that I hadn't dealt with or things that I couldn't understand and, and being seeing them from a different 
point of view. And I think there's an, uh, an element of that that kind of uh, follows through in a lot of the writing I do. And and I looking back to be like, oh, yeah, of course, these were my first comics. And what got me into comics and made me love it are these characters and as it relates to this complicated nature. And I think uh, being able to see that and explore that. And then as, as I reflected on it to be like, oh, yeah, look at all those things that <laughs> if you get it, if you listen to the, the Ian Churchill episode, I uh, I comment on my teenage self who was going through a lot of trauma, but also yeah. was very closeted. Yeah. And I, I relate how as a teenager, the character Cable represented yeah. the idea of I had this half of me, the techno organic yeah. virus that mm -hmm. I had to constantly keep in check. If yeah. I relaxed my guard, it would overwhelm me. Yeah. And I really imprinted on that character in my teenage years. Uh, then I got annoyed with them because they just. <laughs> <laughs> but that he uh, these 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 stories mean a lot to us. The X-Men is really personal to who we are. Yeah. Uh, thank you, everybody, for going on that ride with us. I hope this is, I think this is an incredible uh, episode, Philip. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we're going to put this out on July 19th. Uh, as we're wrapping up, where can people find you online and what would you like to plug? Sure. I mean, online at Instagram, I'm Philip CV Comic Art. On Twitter, if I'm still there, I'm at Philip CV. I just joined Blue Sky Social, which is in beta and it's hard to get into, but it's a fun, like, just really teeny old school Twitter. And I think I'm Philip CV there as well. Um, as far as this, by this point, July 19th, most of Edge of Venomverse Unlimited will be out on Marvel uh, Unlimited. Maybe my next thing will be announced, but I'll be at San Diego Comic-Con that week. So if you happen to be there, I'll be on a couple panels. I'm doing a really interesting panel on neurodivergence in comics. Uh, I am, uh, what else am I doing? Some, some comics experience panels on like storytelling and how to do career comics, do a career in comics and probably some other stuff by then. Like San Diego is one of those things that fills up really fast. I'm probably going to be doing a signing at Dark Horse and who knows, maybe something with Marvel. Probably not though, just because of Marvel's presence there is is just crazy as far as what, what happens at that booth. So uh, Philip is an incredible talent, but also just a genuinely good human being. I'm so <laughs> glad to know you uh, and your girlfriend is amazing and your kids are wonderful. And I just, it's an honor, man. Thanks for, thanks for being on this show today. I had a great no. time. No, thank uh, you. <laughs> I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos, but you can find Gray Malkin PP like podcast on Twitter, Gray Malkin underscore lane on Instagram. We've got plans well into December at this point. I've got some really fucking great stuff coming up on this show <laughs> this year. We've already done a lot of cool stuff, but I'm really genuinely so pumped about the things that are coming out. Uh, the next episode after this on this channel on Patreon is going to be all about the character Kimura who is the evil lady that beats up X-23. Uh, <laughs> and that's going to be with Erica Schultz, who is currently riding Kimura in X-Men Deadly Genesis. That's my next recording after this one. Uh, and then my, the next episode on the main show after we release this will be with Philip once again, with the all-star cast. We're joined by uh, Enid Balam and Zach Thompson. And we're going to cover What If Minus One, which is one of our last remaining flashback month stories that we need to cover, where we'll be talking about an alternate story uh so we're really excited for that as well thanks everybody for tuning in thank you especially to philip cv for all of the work and insight you put into this incredible episode uh and we will see you back here next time on gray malkin lane's patreon